And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, what, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, where increasingly anything can happen because everything is happening everywhere all at once. Borrowing kind of ruthlessly from that uh, uh, Hollywood movie from last year that won the Academy Award. It really is true, and there's so much going on that you can see 24-7 on cable news or on Facebook or TikTok or Twitter slash X. We should probably get into some night why Musk changed the name of Twitter to X, which I think has echoes of SpaceX. SpaceX is really a shortened term for Space Exploration corporation. So that has a logic to it. Um, Someone sent me the other day a video. I hate videos because you have to look at them linearly. And I haven't had time to really look at it, but this is someone who um, purports to know why Musk has changed the name of Twitter to X, up to and including putting a giant X on top of the building there in San Francisco. And then the state, the state, the, the city made them take it down, and I haven't followed the soap opera further. There's there's so much going on, it, you will be forgiven if you can't follow everything at once. So tonight we're going to really be sticking with, frankly, of all the news things going on, excepting maybe the hurricane, for which there is tremendous uh, you know, suffering in the, in the Bend region of Florida because of a Cat 4 storm coming up. Sure, within one day of warning, it was going to ramp up to a Category 4 from Category 1. I mean, 24 hours, that's that, there's, there's obviously different points of view as to why this is happening, and we will not solve that tonight. So except for that story, which is really important to an off a lot of people who still don't have electricity and have water on their lawns and, you know, their house has been destroyed – the, the probably the most important story we're going to talk about tonight, again, from our perspective, Indian Chandrian 3 mission, because there is now so much documentable weirdness going on around the Indian mission to the moon. First time landing for a third world nation seeking really dramatically to become part of the first world, and those lines obviously are now very blurry. Um, So we're going to talk primarily tonight about the Chandrayaan-3 mission and some of the things that you will not read about on any normal news. So let's start with item number one. Uh, This is a kind of a mainstream space policy perspective on what the Indians have achieved with their first lunar landing. And probably more significantly, their first lunar landing near the moon's South Pole. As you may have noticed, everybody who's going back to the moon, except for the uh, Japanese SLIM mission, which, as you know, was supposed to be launched last Sunday. And then at the very last minute, they called a hole because of weather, uh, high level, I think, upper winds, which is a real thing because you can't have your rocket bending in two directions at once as it's making its ascent. And sometimes those winds can be 
hundreds of miles an hour. So uh, if they are at the wrong altitude or the wrong speed, launches have to be delayed. And apparently the window for safely getting to the moon was so narrow that the Japanese have had to recycle the count and they'll not try to leave on the SLIM mission, which is the acronym for the Japanese uh, program, until maybe a month from last Sunday, given that the moon moves around the Earth in about a month, and they will be in the right position to try again in about a month. So, be that as it may, the uh, policy analysis of what the Indians have achieved is very interesting. But again, it's very limited because obviously the mainstream has no idea about artifacts on the moon, extraordinarily ancient, vast global uh, covering glass structures, uh, ancient libraries potentially somewhere near the South Pole, the incredible scientific, economic, and physics breakthrough to say nothing of technological you know, fantastic potential jumps for someone, some nation, some private group who reaches the South Pole region where the libraries are presently occurring and finding them and getting access and sending or bringing the data back home. None of that is part of the mainstream perspective. So from our vantage point, and again, we have data tonight to show you, which will blow your socks off in terms of our model of what's really going on vis-a-vis the moon versus um, most other people. It's interesting to read the mainstream perspective to kind of think about how it's going to have to change as the so-called disclosure process, you know, over on the other side of the street, both at the Pentagon and from my perspective, more importantly, at NASA, is proceeding. Because remember, the uh, independent committee that the administrator of NASA set up to look into UAPs, unidentified anomalous phenomenon, which of course now covers everything. Because every scientific question is an anomaly until you get to some predictive answers. So they have built themselves a box which has infinite width and depth. And as soon as that becomes a mainstream news item that NASA has set up an official office to look at unsolved anomalies, unusual anomalous phenomenon, in which they absolutely said at their only public meeting a month or so ago that they were now going to include a search for ET artifacts across the solar system. Well, you can imagine if there are nations and individual groups who are privately looking at those artifacts even now, and they have not spoken up. They have not admitted that that is what they're doing, even though secretly behind the scenes, as we can document tonight, that seems to be exactly what they're doing. And I'm talking to you, India. What is Prime Minister Modi really up to? Well, we'll leave that aside for later in the morning because we have some really amazing new information to present to you. Item number two. Now, when I keep talking about items one, two, three, etc., we're referring to a section 
of the Other Side of Midnight website called Radio with Pictures. If you go to our um, uh, banner on the main page, on the home page, click on that. That will take you. It's at the very top. It says rather dramatically, if I can get to it quickly here, it says, why is India still hiding ancient Easty trusters on the moon? And they are. We can document that they are. And how they're doing it is as interesting as a Sherlock Holmes mystery. And it again makes one wonder why are they going to all the trouble if at some point they are going to uh, announce or come forward or come clean with what in fact they're finding. Otherwise, what's the point? Well, maybe the point is to keep it secret until they can capitalize on their discoveries. The only problem is that the Indian human missions, you know, people, astronauts sent by India to the moon, is going to lag years behind NASA and the Artemis program, or even Elon Musk and his starship um, sending initially uh, nine uh, artists in orbit around the moon, and eventually obviously following up with actual landings, because of course Musk is also part of the NASA Artemis program, being the prime contractor for the spacecraft which will take the astronauts from the Gateway Lunar Space Station in 2028 or 9 down to the surface of the moon. There are serious questions as to whether the Indians can be ready to outrun NASA or Musk, given that going to the moon with people is light years more complicated and more expensive and obviously more dangerous than sending an unmanned probe. So how this all shakes out politically is uh, still to be determined. Anyway, when you're on that page, which says uh, another banner at the top, the guest page, uh, why is India still hiding ancient ET structures on the moon? Under that, you will see fast links to items. You click on my name. That takes you to the part of the Radio with Pictures page, which shows you the various items, one, two, three, etc. Interesting kind of co-mingled development. Even while the Indian Chandrayaan-3 mission is still working before the coming lunar sunset where they've landed, which is roughly 19.5 degrees from the lunar south pole, plus 33 degrees east. And those of you who are veterans of the program will recognize that those are two not unrelated and incredibly significant numbers. Even while the Indians are still progressing with their Chandrayaan mission, which they claim is going to end at sunset on the moon when the sun falls below the lunar horizon, the temperatures plummet, to like 250 below zero, and they claim their spacecraft, both the lander and the rover, are not prepared to survive a two-week-long lunar night. However, that does not occur until September 6th. Tonight is September 2nd. So why did the Indians just announce, and then we'll go on and we'll come back to this later in the morning, why do the Indians just officially announce on the ISRO 
official website. ISRO is the Indian Space uh, Research Organization. Why did they announce that they have basically their rover, little Prajan, which means supreme wisdom in uh, Hindi, why have they claimed now that they, as of this afternoon, have parked it about, uh, you know, 50, 60 feet from the lander and is going to stay there until the lunar dawn comes once again on, I think, September 22nd? Because if they're really saying that this mission is going to end on September 6th, that's four more days that they could get useful science from the rover, so why are they parking it four days early when everything, according to their very meager reporting, has been working absolutely fine? That's only one of the mysteries surrounding the Indian mission, which I do not have an answer for, but maybe our uh, uh, panelists will come up with an idea which we can check. So item number two. While they're doing this, while India is prosecuting their moon mission, still ongoing, they launched this evening, uh, or rather this morning, uh, a mission to study the sun. And they're using the same parking spot, which is the what's called the L1 position, the Lagrange 1 point, which is about a million miles from Earth in the direction of the sun. Remember, the Webb Space Telescope is at the so-called L2 point, which is a million miles behind the Earth, away from the sun. And if, it, if that sounds familiar, if the, if the um, new Indian mission to study the sun uh, from a million-mile orbit away from Earth sounds familiar, it's because there's a number of other spacecraft from NASA and other nations which are parked in that same halo orbit. And that orbit uh, is so huge you know, it's literally millions of cubic miles that nobody's going to run into anybody. But you might remember that a NASA spacecraft called SOHO uh, is also in that very loosely, you know, drifting um, elliptical orbit. And the spacecraft, once they're there, they they kind of move back and forth, but they never really leave, kind of like the Hotel California. So without any fuel, they can remain at this distance from the Earth, from the Sun, and so the Indians have followed the NASA SOHO mission by something like 20, 25 years. But they're very proud and they're very now focused on their new solar mission. It's kind of almost like they want the public to kind of forget about their still ongoing lunar mission. Because you don't have to wait for a specific day or month or year to launch a mission to the L1 point to study the sun. You can do it any time you want. So why did they choose now overlapping their incredibly historic lunar mission, except maybe to divert attention? Nah, no space agency would do that, would they? Anyway, we will discuss that later in the morning. Item number three. Remember, a few days ago, there was this kind of uh, quasi-race between the Indians who were going to the moon to land on August 23rd, and the Russians, who had not l launched a lunar mission in something like 47 years, and then suddenly out of the blue, for most people who were not paying attention, um, 
they launched Luna 25 as the follow-on to Luna 24, which, as I said, got to the moon back in, I think, 1976, and nothing from the Russians in toward the moon since. Well, a day or so before they were supposed to land on the 21st, something terrible happened, according to the news coming out of Russia, and they said they crashed. Well, you might be forgiven for having a bit of skepticism about official statements coming out of Russia, either way back then or even now. But it turns out, again, according to our own space agency, that via the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been orbiting the moon as a very sophisticated unmanned uh, orbital telescope looking down at the lunar surface and taking, you know, hundreds of thousands of images since 2009, the NASA people running LRO um, were able, about two days after the crash that the Russians claimed for Luna 25, they took a photograph of the calculated trajectory of the errant Russian spacecraft as it spiraled out of control into the moon after a much longer than desired uh, retro burn of the onboard rocket, and they appear to have found the crash site and published side-by-side images, that's in number three, of the lunar landscape before the Russians ostensibly crashed and then after. And they're right there on the uh, uh, Radio with Pictures section of the Other Side of Midnight guest page. Scrolling on down, we now, of course, are into the main topic of the morning, which is the Chandrayaan landing and some of the most interesting, if perplexing, developments which have occurred around this, what should have been a rather straightforward landing by an unmanned robotic spacecraft, which because of four more years of intensive technological effort by the Indians since they tried it back in 2019 and their first attempted landing crashed, you would think it would be relatively straightforward. And once they were successfully landed, they would pepper us like the Chinese did back in 2013 with dozens, if not dozens of dozens of images and live videos and panoramas and all kinds of color. And they've done nothing like that. It's now Saturday night. It's 10 days since the uh, Indians successfully landed. And they have released exactly five separate individual images. One in color from the lander, repeated over and over and over again as videos were taken and then replayed on a delayed timescale of the uh, camera pointed at the bottom of the ramp down which the little rover, uh, a day or two after their landing, quietly rolled down and out onto the lunar surface. And if you want to kind of catch up on what that coverage was like, then you can listen to last week's show. And just to remind everyone, tomorrow night we had planned a live show dealing with Maui, because there are all kinds of bizarre, increasingly credible questions around the horrible Lahaina fire on the island of Maui in the Hawaiian island chain. 
and we had tried to do the program on those new developing data points and mysteries and data confirmations tomorrow night. And our key guest, a prime witness of a lot of this weirdness and strangeness, uh, was not available uh, at the last minute for tomorrow night. So what we're going to do, because of the importance of tonight's show and the new information that we want people to really pay attention to, and things are so confusing these days with so much information coming at us as the old cliche goes, like drinking from a fire hose, that we're going to replay tonight's show again tomorrow night. So if you're too cheap <laughs> to become a member of Club 19.5, or you really can't afford it, or you have friends or neighbors or family or cousins or whatever uh, who can't afford it or who want to kind of dip their toe in the water before they want to uh, sign up for Club 19.5, tomorrow night in its entirety, you'll be able, they will be able to hear this entire show repeated again, including coverage of this really remarkable and historic unraveling of what I really would think would be a kind of a Sherlock's home level un unwinding mystery, because none of the things that you would expect a third world nation seeking equality among, you know, the superpowers of the world is happening in India. In fact, as I said a few moments ago, it's almost like with their new solar mission, which they could launch any time they want to. There's no launch windows involved. They decided to launch today, thereby overshadowing in the mainstream press the rather dull, again to the mainstream, coverage of the Chandrayaan-3 lunar mission. Like stepping on your own lines or upstaging someone when you're on a Broadway play by basically just standing in front of them, you know, in terms of the audience. Why is India, again, stepping on its own amazing, as you're going to see tonight, new first-time lunar mission? Hopefully, by the end of the next uh, two and a half hours, we will have shed more light than heat on this important discussion. So let me introduce our panelists tonight. Um, we have Andrew Curry, who, of course, as you know, is a uh, professional artist. He works on movies. He works on commercials. He works on shorts. Um, he's done extraordinary artistic work on our efforts to unravel uh, artifacts both on the moon and Mars and some other planets in between. I don't mean that technically, but you know what I mean. Then we have Ruggiero Kahlo, who is a uh, uh, actually a registered podiatrist, but he turns out to have extraordinary artistic talents, which he has lent to the Enterprise mission and the other side of midnight. And he is with us with some insights and ideas regarding the Chandrian mission. He did a really amazing sketch uh, of a um, uh, human-looking leg bone on the moon, photographed some years ago by the Curiosity rover. And I noticed just this afternoon that somewhere some news or agency has picked up on that photograph and is talking about the great mystery of a human-looking leg bone on the planet Mars. So if you wait long enough, things do come around. 
Then we have Robert Morningstar. Now, the, the detailed bios of all these people is basically if you click on that second line under the uh, uh, guest page uh, banner, uh, you'll see that it says uh, fast links to bios. The first line is fast links to items. Those are images or, you know, videos or whatever. The second line is to their detailed biographies. I'm giving a shortened version tonight because you can go and read yourself. So Robert Morningstar is our kind of civilian intelligence analyst. He's got degrees in psychology or is it psychiatry? I always forget. He went to Fordham. Uh, he was involved in a Navy AI program, artificial intelligence. And uh, he does really interesting analyses of all kinds of currently anomalous discussions and events and uh, occurrences. And he will be part of our show on next Saturday night if we, in fact, get to do the Maui program. Then we have Ron Gerbrun, who is our resident generalist, who is basically interested in extraterrestrial archaeology. But he knows a lot about a lot of things, so we'd like to have Ron's opinions uh, whenever we can. Holger Eisenberg is with us. He is an imaging expert who emigrated many years ago from Germany to uh, Northern California and is currently speaking as tonight, literally, well, not quite literally, but almost from the shadow of the pyramids in Egypt. He's literally in Cairo, where it's about 7.30 a.m., which for Holger is a very decent time. Uh, we're going to be joined later by Arun, uh, who is Andrew uh, Curry's friend, whose uh, family lives in India. Uh, he immigrated to the United States many years ago, and then he kind of drifted north to Canada, where he's working on uh, very interesting uh, professional uh, materials that, uh, you know, ba basically that's all you need to know is that he is connected deeply to what's going on in India. And I'm hoping tonight we will have a firsthand kind of behind-the-scenes report from his family as to what is occurring around the Chandrian mission there in India as opposed to the Western press. And then we're joined by Laura London. Now, Laura, her role tonight, she is actually um, a another generalist. Her background is in psychology. She has her own program called Speaking of Jung. You might want to check that out. Um, I did a guest interview with her many, what, I guess two years ago, and it's one of the best uh, sample programs in her archive, which tells you something about the caliber of the people who follow Laura. And last but not least, certainly not least, we have Georgia Lambert with us, not really in her role as our resident metaphysician, but what you may not know, like with Kinthea, Georgia is a very accomplished artist, incredibly accomplished. And I asked her specifically to be part of our discussion tonight because a lot of what we're going to talk about relating to uh, and around the Chandrian mission has to do with color, the real colors of the moon, and why, apparently, the Indian mission is avidly and vigorously suppressing that. I mean, why would you lie about the colors of the moon if you have the technology that's capable of seeing them? And that appears to be, again, according to the evidence, exactly what's occurring. In other words, maybe from the Indian perspective, 
if they show us real color, it will give the game away. So without further ado, let me open the microphones here. And I, I, I guess I want to go to you, Andrew, first because of your uh, friendship with Arun and with your ability over another week to look at more of these images we've been passing around. And given tonight, we're going to be talking about art and color and the striking lunar landscape on which the Indians have landed successfully, but apparently don't want to actually own up to what they're really seeing. Let me go to you first for your reactions. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Richard. Uh, actually, yeah, actually, I, I, I really committed a boo-boo because we're at oh. the bottom of the hour. So uh, why don't we hold it there? And when we come back, I will obviously bring Andrew on first, and he will tell you, in fact, his impressions. Because this show is definitely one for the history books, given that we seem on the verge tonight of being at the head of breaking news about the Indian mission. Nowhere else are you going to hear or see what you're about to see and hear on the other side of midnight here at 10.30 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, uh, September 2nd of 2023. My guest, too numerous to mention, again, you can go to the bio connection there on the uh, guest page and get detailed backgrounds on everybody whose uh, voices you will hear. For new listeners, I would appreciate if our uh, panelists would identify themselves when they first come on so people can kind of get used to their voices. So without further ado, Sorry, Andrew, for that little kind of teasing intro. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I 
kind of lost track of time too. Yeah, thank you, Richard. Um, well, you know how I felt when the the, the um, Indian uh, probe first landed. I immediately saw the colors from the feed that we – well, it was a poor feed we were getting from India, but you could see the colors that were on the moon's surface. And then when the, the lander was beginning to come down the ramp, I believe we are seeing motifs on the surface. And I know some people say, you know, we even had, as you said last week, from some of the more science-y, uh, you know, grounded so-called people, they were saying, why does the ground <laughs> look so strange? Is that a, you know, an effect of the cameras? And it, no, no, those are real things. And um, well, do you remember you know, what I did after we finished the show last uh, Saturday night? Uh, I called you. Had, oh yeah, like a half an hour because I figured that uh, you know your wife was safely in bed and you were free to roam, <laughs> and you might still be up. So I did because I had to tell you, and now I'm going to tell everybody. One of the things that Andrew said during that show when we were discussing the uh, fact that around the lander there was these extraordinary uh, geometric uh, glass-like obvious uh, uh, patterns that I've never seen in such incredible clarity or in prismatic colors anywhere else on anybody's landing on the moon. And so um, one of the things that Andrew had said during the show was, well, it looks like the the the, the thrust from the descent engines, the uh, rockets which lowered the lander safely to the to the ground, they blew away the dust, the regolith so-called, which is really, as as Armstrong said, very fine grain dust. They blew it away, and they left this like clear circle around the lander, where you could see what was underneath the very thin covering, inch or two of dust. But if you look in the upper right-hand corner of the photographs that we were displaying in color from right at the base of the lander uh, ramp last week, you could see in the upper right-hand corner of the frame that there was still geometry visible, but that the dust had blown up there like, like, like snowdrifts in Minnesota in you know, January. And so his model was absolutely confirmed. It didn't get softer and fuzzier toward that upper right-hand corner because it was out of focus or it was too fine resolution for the camera and the distance. It literally was where the dust wound up lying, again, like blown snow, drifting snow, as the lander's rockets uncovered a bare patch of ground probably 20, 30 feet in, in radius in all directions. And so whatever was going on on the near the South Pole of the Moon, with about 19.5 degrees from the pole, it's a place where we have never been. It's an environment that no other missions to the Moon have ever seen. And it was basically revealed by the very force of the descent engines of the Indian spacecraft, and none of this was discussed or is still being discussed by any of the extraordinarily um, constipated Israel briefings. Andrew. Yeah, not just that, Richard, but the – well, to be fair, it was you and Ron that first discussed the the dust being blown away by the lander, but, and I just sort of you know chipped that back in, so really it was the three of us and probably – Probably mostly from you guys, and probably I mostly from Ron. I think in golf they call that a gimme. I think. 
<laughs> well, the other thing too, uh, Richard, is that you mentioned there was a they gave us a video of the lander sort of exiting down the ramp, and then it started to make these tracks. And I think you either said or intonated that was that even real, or was that more? No, of an AI I, I said it straight out. I thought was that right? Fake? It was an AI because yeah. it wasn't live. Remember the 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 Chinese for all their incredible communist dictatorship and secrecy and propaganda and eavesdropping and you know all the things the Chinese communists do. The thing that I have to laud them for is when they've landed on the moon, every time they've given us everything they've got, including amazing pictures of the domes, they've kind of blurred them so most people have no idea what they're looking at. But they posted the data and the and the rover deployment they showed us they showed us live they showed us their landing live and they didn't cut away like the indians did you know like a minute before landing and have their prime minister looming like a giant effigy on the screen with a very stupid animation on the right hand portion of that screen so the actuality the actual landing of the indian spacecraft never got broadcast very very weird for a country which keeps billing itself as the world's greatest, biggest democracy. I mean, this is bizarre. The Chinese communists are more democratic about what they're doing on the moon than India. Why? Are you asking me? Yeah. Well, it's more like a rhetorical question. Everybody will, <laughs> you know, have an answer, I presume, or at least a well-crafted well fake answer. <laughs> Well, I mean, they're covering up. Um, ah. they're having, I mean, it's another another subterfuge. You know, you know, it's funny. I just want to interject with something really quick. I I, I was watching this documentary yesterday. Beautiful documentary on Walt Disney and his and it was summarized really beautifully. And anyways, it tracked his whole his whole career and history, and then eventually his sort of connection with the, uh, you know, um, Werner von Braun and and Willie Lay and all these guys. And it's interesting how. You know, there was such a tremendous buildup uh, with, well, at the time, the United States, uh, with the push towards outer space. Uh, Walt Disney was the guy to really, you know, do this because the, the guy created a theme park. No one had done this before. And he was able to just bring together a lot of people and, you know, come up with inspiring ideas. And we know from uh, the paintings of your friend, um, uh, Al, uh, Oh, now I had a. Yeah. Uh, I think you're thinking of my friend Chesley Bonstell. Yes, as opposed and, to the astronaut artist Alan Bean. Yeah, I was looking at the images on your on your um, items, and they're beautiful. But Richard, there was this beautiful buildup, and there and a few years back, just to add another piece, they unrolled in one of the museums uh, uh, Bonstell's mural that he did of like literally. A, a crater like where the Indians have landed, and it's actually quite extraordinary what he painted. In, in other words, it's very unusual. But there was all this buildup, and now we come to 2023, and they're they're just lying. They're just making stuff up. I, I don't understand. Like we we had this runway to gloriousness, and then it was muted, and it continues to be. And I I don't. I don't and they're I, now with the launch to the to the like Soho to the sun. They're stepping on their own incredible story because, you know, the press can't keep more than one thought, certainly about space in their minds more than one time.
Well, I hope something breaks soon, even if it's an accident or somebody actually, you know, actually gives us something. So well, it's already that. happened. We've already. Got, I'm going to give the game away tonight. We Thank have you. leaked Indian data, so someone in the ranks is not happy in India with what is going on, and they've slipped some extraordinary new information. Remember in my promo, I said we have new leaked color images we're never supposed to have. They came out the back door through a source. I can identify the source because he's a public person. He obviously is not going to you know, engage on who leaked him this information, and we don't want to know. We just know that it's real because it totally corroborates everything we projected from what they had released last Saturday, which was like one photo. One photo. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what I mean. You make this tremendous uh, step for humanity because apparently no one has gone to the South Pole. Well, no, no one has. Public. No, no, as far as yeah, we know. Pu publicly at least, right? Exactly. And, and yet this is all we get. And Richard, one last thing before I move aside to let someone else come on. Do you really buy that the lander is going to just fizzle out? I know Ron really believes that, and, and that's what the Indians have said. Ron's just recapitulating what, what they've said. But do you really buy that? Is it, is it truly the temperatures are going to knock no, this thing out? No, it's not that – look, it's not the temperatures. We've got you know spacecraft living in environments which are, are planned to be even colder than the south pole of the moon during total night in those you know, permanently shadowed craters. Um, I forget how many years ago. is 1966. Somebody do the math for me. But in 1966 in June – NASA landed for the first time their unmanned Surveyor 1 spacecraft uh, uh, on uh, uh, the Sea of, of Storms, Oceanus Procellarum. And I, that night, fortuitously, through a whole bunch of things we don't have time to go into here, wound up working for NBC that night as a consultant. And so I was there present live looking over all the screens when we successfully landed, we, the United States, an unmanned robot on the moon that was infinitely more primitive than the spacecraft the Indians landed a few days ago. For the first thing, there were no, you know, chips. There were no, you know, solid state circuits. There were at best transistors. Transistors do not like cold and they don't like cold contrasts, like two different temperatures at the, at the same time. And everybody expected after two weeks of lunar day, when Surveyor 1 went into lunar night, that would be the last we would hear of it. And the next morning, next lunar morning, 14 days later, it comes back on the air. And every lunar morning for months, back in the primitive dark ages of space of 1966, Surveyor 1 came back and broadcast loudly, I'm here. And they took photographs and did more analysis and took more photographs. And it kept going on and on and on. So finally, when the deputy administrator for uh, uh, NASA uh, visited me at the museum in Springfield, and we kind of hung out together for a couple of days, and he helped me pull my car out of a snowdrift. It was winter. I said to him rather, you know, amusingly, I said, uh, you know, Homer, are, are you ever going to get that thing to turn itself off, or do you have to send somebody up there to beat it to death with a stick? Because NASA, in their perspective in the 60s 
they did not plan for these rover these these rovers these landers to survive more than one lunar day and so they didn't allocate separate radio frequencies to surveyor 2 surveyor 3 surveyor 4 etc that were planned in the series to go to various parts of the moon and try to analyze you know the environment on the a large number of landing sites on the side of the moon facing the Earth, the Earth side. So they could not launch Surveyor 2 to land on the moon until they somehow got Surveyor 1 to shut up, to uh-huh. peacefully and quietly and benignly die. And it refused to. It became a kind of an inside joke. So we're now, however many decades later, we've got state-of-the-art technology, all solid state, no tubes, no mirrors, no you know, uh, half-assed attempts to keep things warm or cold. And they're all saying very loudly, oh, the mission's going to die in two weeks. It's going to die in one week. It's going to die in four days. That's why ostensibly they put the rover in a park position, waiting for the sun to come again on the hope. They say officially in the rather slim hope that it will revive on the coming lunar sunrise. I think it's all a cover story because frankly, what they will do is say, test, test, it just didn't survive. And then they will continue with what Keith Laney has proudly claimed as his copyrighted title for his website, a hidden Indian mission. Otherwise, why would you park your rover if it's only going to last four more days, four days ahead of time and have it just sit there doing nothing? It and makes, then why would you – go ahead. Well, and why would you even spend the time to come up with these funky names like wisdom? You know, like, come on. Supreme wisdom. Yeah, exactly. To me, like, that's, a, that's a cover for the ancient ETs who built the stuff on the moon, stuff, staggering stuff that people freak out about because they can't imagine the scale. That would be if you encounter their libraries or whatever archives they left would be – by our standards, supreme wisdom. I have a feeling, I can't prove it yet, but I have a feeling the little Pragan rover, supreme wisdom, is trundling off toward that pyramid we see uh, in, in the south about uh, a mile and a half away. And it can get there and do the analysis and close-up imaging in plenty of time to then wait for lunar dawn, not 50 feet from the Pragan land, from the uh, uh, Vikram lander, but maybe a mile or two, judging by the photographs we've got. Again, that's just a speculation. I want to clearly, uh, you know, label what we know and what we suspect based on a lot of Sherlock Holmes weirdness around what should have been a very straightforward third world look. We've joined the big guys club, Indian lunar mission. Okay, um, let me bring on. Uh, is Vergara with us yet? I don't think so. Okay. Let me let me bring on uh, Laura because Laura, I think you have some questions, and if you have one that we can answer, we'll try. If not, we'll wait for other people to join us. Hi. Uh, well, the first thing that came to my mind was in this country of India of 1.4 billion people. Why? Look. You've referred to it as a third world country. I don't know if that's 
accurate, but why is this moon mission so important? And how are the people of India feeling, the people begging on the streets? Okay, I mean, let's call it what it is. How do they feel about all this money being spent on a mission to the moon that has yielded what? So it reminds me of aircraft carriers. They are a show of force. Is this a show of force by this country? You mean India? Yeah. Well, it's it's an effort to join the very exclusive club. But why? Because of what we really know is there. The nations that get access to ET libraries first, that bring back samples, material first, will have a leg up on everybody else because, remember, even in a few years, technology and science progress at, an, at a logarithmic rate. It's not linear. There's a thing called Moore's Law, where in the computer sciences, you know, knowledge doubles every 18 months. You can imagine how far ahead of terrestrial civilization a, an artifact-structured technological civilization on the moon had to be. And if you get access to their, to their archives, to their knowledge base, to their libraries, as I keep saying, and you keep that information to yourself, then you don't have to share with anybody and you can leap ahead by light years while everybody else is kind of waiting to catch up. That's one potential reason. I think there are more deeper philosophical reasons connected to India's ancient mythology, which Modi and a lot of us believe is really ancient terrestrial history, maybe as old as 30,000 years. Um, so I think there's both geopolitical reasons that people would understand and much deeper reasons that we're going to be exploring in some depth, I hope, tonight for why India might be keeping the biggest secret in the solar system secret. And, of course, it's only secret from everybody except for the governments of the world that already all know what's there. And that includes Russia, China, Japan, India, Britain. France, the U.S., et cetera, et cetera. It's like there's an in-game and an out-game, and the Indians have joined the in-crowd because they've made it, and they've thereby proven they can do it again. Now, when you talk about cost, uh, remember the disparity between the U.S. average income, which is about 70000 a year, and the average Indian citizen income, which is about 2000 a year, makes in terms of the world economic development councils and banks and IMF and all that, this official declaration of India as a third world nation. It's strictly a an economic argument. One argued last week, and I would support that, that because of what they've done, uh, they are definitely leapfrogged into the first world uh, cadre, at least in terms of high technology. In terms of how much they're spending, the Chandrayaan-3 mission costs $77 million. That's all. $77 million. That's a little more than coffee money for a year at NASA headquarters. You know, it's, it's pocket change compared to weapon systems and other nations' space programs, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not exactly taking food out of the mouths of all the people on Twitter or X and all the other social media who have been inundating the Indian government, ISRO, Modi's office, etc., with tens and tens of thousands 
of incredibly congratulatory emails and texts and responses to the mission. So, and I'm hoping we can have Arun, you know, check us on this. My impression is that the, quote, average Indian citizen is so proud that their nation has now joined the big boys club that they're not looking at the rupees at all, at all. They're so proud, but what about everybody, all the citizens uh, of India who don't own a computer, don't own a smartphone, aren't on Twitter? How do they feel? I mean, we're just hearing from the people who... Right, exactly, who who are technologically blessed. Well, I don't know of any polls, you know, opinion polls, Gallup, et cetera, that are run on the streets of India to find out how the average poor Indian citizen feels, but I have the feeling that they're not looking at this as a bottom line thing. They're looking at this as an Indian. We did it. We're we're up there among, you know, the elites, even if, if pride is a, is a thin substitute for lack of bread. And just one more point. When you go to Israel's website and Israel? click on Israel, Oh, Israel. Okay. Israel's what? ISRO's website. The the Indian Space Agency. Yes. And you click on the Chandrayaan 3 image gallery. There are a few small, low resolution photos of the moon's surface. And then everything after that, you get these great, big, beautiful photos of the launch, of the rocket, Mm -hmm. of the pre-launch. It's almost like they're more interested or proud, want to show what they accomplished and not the fruits of their labor. So it's all about, yeah, we got there. Okay, you're there. Now, why are you there? Well, that's kind of the same perspective that Ron has had. If if you're at the end of the first tranche of your questions, let me turn to Ron. Ron, you've been listening. What are your thoughts? I was just about to step in there. And Richard, you should sit, you should sit down because I'm actually going to say something nice about you. Uh, the um, uh, No, uh, Andrew got one thing wrong, uh, which is I didn't tell him that I expected the um, – little rover to give up the ghost and you uh, Richard have a perfectly plausible explanation for the fact that the thermal shock problem is less there than uh, in places where other stuff has landed on the moon so that the likelihood that it will survive uh, is you know thereby higher I can't say that I know all the details but obviously they built stuff as well as they could and uh, they they make a pretty good cell phone too. So I, uh, in case, the case of Laura, everybody in India has one. They have a, They already have a phone. They build everybody else's. It's uh, just because the economic strata there uh, seem radically spread out compared to what we think of. It's it's just it's a different system, and they're used to it. You know, they aren't starving because the um, because Israel mounted a moon mission. It's something that the whole country feels proud about. And you can look on social media, and there's plenty of entries from people saying everything that you that the audience has heard tonight and more. You know, there are people that are saying, "Well, you mean that's it?" 
and people that are saying, well, we made it. Yay. Yay, India. You know, all these things are quite normal. They just have a different system there. Remember, they used to be under a very strict caste system, which the uh, it lingers, even though it's not struck aside. So, you know, there there was an expectation built in there that some people could never rise above a certain point. Uh, and they don't really have that anymore. So there's no reason, you know, for anybody there to feel bad about it. As far as joining the world stage, I think they're being cautious. I think that the reason that they did the mission was to prove that they could do a landing, which is the, as far as most people's attention spans take them. Oh, look, they landed and they did a beautiful job of landing it after a couple of tries. Again, you get points for that. You know, you, they went right back in there, tried it again, and they won. You know, it's like a Rocky movie. <laughs> so uh, the anything else is gravy. They have not played it up. And I think, Richard, again, you're quite right. They're, uh, if they do find something, uh, if it has political value, they'll bring it up. But the overall secrecy about what's going on with the moon, uh, they're not going to tread on that directly. Uh, that would put them in a bigger fight ring than they're, uh, you know, realistically ready for. It's obvious what the politics are. You know, as you said, that huge visage of uh, the um, uh, prime minister looking down upon everything uh, was, well, he was actually looking obviously at a much smaller screen that uh, we assume was smaller that he was facing, and we couldn't see that. But, it, you know, the net result was that his focused view looked like he was glaring down at the people in mission control. <laughs> and that would be pretty intimidating if your boss is staring down at you like that. Uh, but, yeah, no, I think it's all taking a rather a rather normal course. But, uh, but, you know, don't sell the Indian people short just because their country has a um, – what. Seems like a lot of poverty. I don't know if you've been there. I've okay. been there. Uh, guys, we are at the top of the hour. Everyone hold it there. When we come back, I'm going to bring on Robert Morningstar, who has a very interesting way of digging in his role of civilian intelligence analyst. And uh, I'm informed that Arun will be with us in uh, probably the next half hour or so. So we'll get a direct read, Laura, on your question from someone with very deep roots into India. You're on the other side of midnight. We're discussing an extraordinarily historic mission. Even if the people deeply involved and the audience they're playing to may have no idea what they've really found. We shall return. Fascinating guests. 
support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, the 2nd of September. We're uh, into a uh, Labor Day weekend, so let me wish all of you uh, a happy Labor Day, all of you who work, all of us who work, because there's many different forms of work, and uh, it all should be acknowledged and enjoyed and exalted, because without it, we would not be who and what we are. We're talking tonight about India and their incredibly interesting and increasingly mysterious unmanned mission for the first time successfully landing near the South Pole of the Moon at 19.5 degrees from the pole. When we look at the pictures, and we're going to spend a little time now after we bring Robert on for some of his early reactions, what we're going to do is show some more pictures and then have everyone kind of comment about what they see in the pictures and why they are affirming the model that we have been describing for decades, which is of an incredibly ancient and incredibly overarching glass shell in multiple layers, miles above the moon. Every time I say that, you know, people go, oh, he's at it again. He's doing it. Well, when you have data from so many different sources and sensor systems, from visible to infrared to radar echoes, all showing you the same thing, and then you make a prediction, which I did on this show, you know, going back long before the Indians uh, actually succeeded, that when they got to the South Pole, <clears throat> if they got down safely, um, they would be able to uh, uh, see much thicker glass demonstrating much more obvious optical effects, not the least of which would be amazing color. And lo and behold, that first image from the Chandrian 3 lander, when you simply turn up the color, when you simply, you know, elevate the, the, the color control, like on an old TV set, it turns out that the Indians, like NASA and other space agencies, when they get to the moon, they literally do not show you what is there. They suppress everything interesting, and they give you these dull, dry, dead gray-looking landscapes. And that's not the moon that really exists at all, as you're going to see as we work through this amazing new, again, leaked Indian data uh, later in, in the in the program. So, Robert, let me ask you your thoughts. 
Well, my thoughts are that, um, folks, this is Robert. This is my voice. <laughs> my okay. Um, I'm very gratified in the second week. I've been immersed in the moon. It's kind of like a plane scrub for me. I'm hearing an echo. Does anybody else hear it? No, you're just kind of distorted in Skype. Okay. I'll try to talk around my... It's like shouting at the canyon. It, it might be your bandwidth. No. My show's... Don't do this. I was on all day. No echo. Uh, so, anyway, let's, I can get through it. See how long is the echo, 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 echo. <laughs> what I think is uh, surprise India is prestige. As I said last week, this achievement has raised up to the status first world nation. Nobody wants to be second world or third world. They've been, actually, India was the one that invented the concept of the third world. Remember? Nehru, that. 1960s, not on blind But obviously they're aligned with the lunar governing authority, which whether it's terrestrial lunar. I'll tell you what, Robert, you're distorting so much that why don't you yeah. why don't you hang up and uh, try joining us again? Yeah, let me let me do that. Yeah, and 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 in the interim, since we don't want to have dead air, um, let's see, uh, let's see who do I want to go to. Uh, well, why don't we ask Holger? What, what are your thoughts? Now you're right. I'm back. Okay. And I don't hear my... Okay, so if I make continue, prestige is the prize. And I think every Indian scientist and professional is really proud. And uh, revenue is acknowledgement, recognition, respect, all the things that are God for what I yeah, I'm. I'm sorry, Robert. You're really garbling. You know. Well, you're really at work too. There's well, something wrong with the system. Well, it could be somebody you're trying to interfere. Yeah. Come on, that wouldn't be the first time. I call it clipping. Why don't you ask Keith what he uh, for a technical uh, interest in it? Okay, people are saying that I'm not echoing, but Robert is pretty. In, you know, it's too compressed. It's basically a compression algorithm True. problem. True. So, Robert? Well, if that's the case, I would like to say it seems to be straightening out over here. I don't hear myself echoing as before. But anyway, one of the things I want to say is that every time we come on the program, Ruggiero uh, gets gypped, and so does... Uh, Ron, so I would like to see Ruggiero get through his items, and then later on, uh, well, can see here's both of us just fine. Okay. Well, but, uh, given given Robert that it's not your show, would you mind if I run my own show the way no, I need yeah, to run it? All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank but you. I want to ask Algar. Want to ask Algar one question, which will bear on what I say later. I'd like to ask Algar about the plasma data. And if we saw anything significant in the plasma that it was released. Olger, I think you were asked to be on. <laughs> Unmute. Unmute, Olger. It's amazing how many years we've all been doing this and people forget Olger that. Olger breakfast. Okay, anyway, I had a question about the plasma because the lighting regimen all over that region is very unusual. And uh, I'll come back later. Things yeah, we, we we need to have you reconnect again because it's it's a bandwidth between you're the only one is doing it to. It's weird. So, 
Um, all right, <clears throat> let me let me go to Ruggiero because Ruggiero, you asked me earlier in the week about the fact that you could post images that seem different and far more colorful these days than um, the old Apollo and other NASA imagery. Would you want to start there? Um, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, good evening. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> good morning. I literally have just woken up, so I'll try and give my, my best answer. Yeah. Um, I was coming into this from a layman's perspective. Uh, I, I would not understand why um, we're seeing color in the images now um, and his, historically like in the Apollo images it, it was just gray or plain black and white so what, what would be the scientific reason for, for well you know, see it's so obvious and I've only said it a million times but obviously mm-hmm. you know if you're not part of the program you don't hear maybe one of the answers <clears throat> the answer is that up until now everybody mm-hmm. and mostly it was us and the Russians have been suppressing the color. Yeah. Simply turn down the color and you produce black and white versions of real color images. The Indians are doing the same thing, except it's a little more, shall we say, blatant and out in front, and we've caught them at it. And so later in the program, we're going to show you that what the Indians are claiming are just black and white images. Actually, they're black and white versions of actual real color images and they're playing the old NASA game by only giving us black and white versions. Again, part of hiding the truth. Yeah, because uh, each of um, the, the new, new data coming out um, on their website. So if anyone goes onto the ISRO site and uh, clicks on the main page, there's a beautiful scrolling video of the descent of the um spacecraft to the moon's surface uh, and on it is a, a lovely grayish but slightly uh, translucent shimmering um, of greens and a bit of pink and, a few, and, a, and other colors. Well, should we go uh, to your images? Because your first two images really encapsulate yeah. what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So when you so, when you go to the banner on the guest page, click on fast links to items underneath it. Click on Ruggiero's name. That will take you to his section of Radio with Pictures. And his first item shows, I guess this is a screen grab from ISRO of the camera on the orb, on the uh, uh, lander, uh, looking at the moon as the moon is flowing by uh, in orbit before the landing. And you mm-hmm. just grab one of the frames, and then you posted an item number two below it, where you simply increase the saturation uh, of the color values of the frame, and lo and behold, there's all kinds of color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're well, and, well, and, and and you are really puzzled as to why that's possible now and wasn't seemed to be possible in in previous eras of space exploration, right? Absolutely. Because they've been lying to us. It's not hard to grasp, mm-hmm. and we're in a different social milieu. So I expected, in a rather naive way, I imagine, that in this new, uh, you know, era where the Pentagon is talking about UFOs and ETs and and uh, you know official government officials are are sitting before Congress and talking about you know memos about bodies and spacecraft 
and NASA is saying they're going to set up an office to look at extraterrestrial artifacts, I assumed in that new political environment that when the Indians, you know, pulled off this incredibly difficult historic feat, they would want to be number one on the runway, to quote Aldrin, in giving us the truth. And instead, they've been absolutely terrified, apparently, to say anything about what's really there. Well, it, it, it certainly skewed sideways, you know, the, the, the data they're putting out. And I think it's it's time to have an open conversation, isn't it? NASA's kind of publicly allowed it by bringing out the um, UAP investigation. Yeah. And conference. So now it, it's out there to the public. It's there to be discussed. It should be done without stigma. And um, I think we have the right to discuss, uh, you know, these images without uh, being chastised and so what's going on here and uh, your ex your theory your model is as plausible as any others Richard so, well I would argue I think my model is confirmed as you're going to see by the imagery coming later in the show okay there yeah, yeah, there, yeah. There, uh, there, uh, there 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 comes a point as my uh, grandmother used to say when you have to do this or get off the you know what and uh, uh, I've cleaned it up a bit and it's time for everybody to be very forthright as to what is there. How much more evidence do we need to put on the public record before even the naysayers have to say there's something bizarre that makes no sense unless the model is being confirmed? I'm yeah, going to get pretty adamant about that as we move forward. So it totally is. That, that's why we provide the data because it doesn't make sense, and um, you know, it looks like your theory, what you're saying, is uh, is the strongest thing out there. Because what what other scientific explanation is there? And that's why I always try to come in like as um, a layman, you know, the public who he was like, what is this? I don't know what's going on. Trying to give an other explanations so that you can come down and give your science, you know, scientific method and try and um, take it, the other arguments apart. Because I think right now yours is the strongest it stands. Well, thank you. <clears throat> okay, um, okay, let me let me get back to the the actual imagery because there mm, there's a go. lot to discuss and we don't have infinite amounts of time. So if you go back to my items, you want to go to item number four. The big news okay. this week in the mainstream was uh, after the little rover trundled, I can say that trundled down the ramp, they took a couple of images of the landscape which we'll get to momentarily. And then they turned around and took a couple of images uh, right uh, close to the lander and then a bit further away, like maybe, you know, another five feet. And the, the further away, wider shot is item number four. They're, they're, they're saying now, this is very important. The Indian government officially in the press releases and the documentation files and the flight plans and everything published about their Indian mission, divided between the lander named Vikram, which means hero, and Pragan, which means supreme wisdom. Um, they are saying over and over again that they have two cameras on the rover, and they're both black and white, and they're left and right, so they get stereo because they're used as navigation cameras. So they publish this really interesting and fascinating and historic picture of the Vikram lander, as you can see in number four, 
And of course, what I do when these official images come out, I start playing around with contrast and light levels and brightness and all that. And if you look at number five, <clears throat> this is what happens with the official image number four when you simply brighten it up. And the landscape, of course, gets a lot brighter and overexposed as do parts of the lander. But what is that extraordinary light and geometry above the horizon behind the Vikram lander? That shouldn't be there. That should not be there. That should be dead black space, according to all we've been told officially about the moon. Now, of course, my model has been for many years that the moon is covered with this layered, ancient, incredibly meteoroted glass shell, which is denser in some places than others. And if you know where the big chunks are, you can navigate down through it and land safely, but you got to know where the chunks are, which means you either need imagery or radar or both. So it looks to me like the dome over the south polar region of the moon at 19.5 degrees, comparatively speaking, as I predicted, is a lot denser than it is over the Apollo landing sites or the Russian landing sites or the Chinese surface landing site for Chang 3. And you can see in black and white the stunning reality right there in image number five. So then, uh, a day or so later, <clears throat> a very talented citizen scientist in France named Thomas Appierre, A-P-P-E-R-E, -E, with the proper accent marks, who's done brilliant citizen science imaging for many, many years. He provides all kinds of stuff to the Planetary Society, to unmannedspaceflight.com, which is funded by the Planetary Society. He took the black and white image, and as he's done with other missions, he basically colorized it given that we have no color from the Indians, he colorized it according to the spacecraft in the, in the, in the um, uh, laboratory, in the clean rooms where it was being assembled, where it was photographed from all different angles in color. And then he posted this colorized image uh, in number five as number six tonight, we put it up, there is number six. And you can see even in the colorized version, that there's this peculiar shading and light streaking and whatever in the sky behind the nicely colorized lander and the lunar surface. Now, keep in mind, the lander colors are real, but they're not from the moon. They're from the clean rooms where the spacecraft was being assembled by India, you know, in the last four years. Then we go to number seven. Number seven, I really stretched out the brightness levels and you can see there's all kinds of amazing tiered geometry in the sky above the Vikram lander. Again, in this false color view that uh, Thomas Appierre, you know, posted after he created it in Photoshop. And it's both vertical and horizontal. And you got this bizarre, dark tunneling effect in the middle of the landscape of the picture above the horizon, which to me, I thought initially I knew what might be going on, and that's item number eight, because I posted the same overexposed frame, colorized by Apre, uh, on the left, 
And on the right is what's called a vignetted lensing effect. Because lenses, if they're not perfectly made, or if they're in the wrong, you know, lens holder or whatever, the edges in a circular pattern can occult the light beams coming through the lens and being bent or refracted, which is what lenses do. So you get a circular pattern of brightness where it's brightest at the center and then it falls off toward the edges. That's standard camera lens vignetting. And when I initially saw the Indian photo, I thought, okay, that's what's going on. They use really cheap cameras, really cheap lenses, because they're a poor country, and this is what they got. Except the pattern in the Vikram image, not the pattern on the right of a typical vignetting effect where it's brightest at the center and it decreases at the edge of the frame. Here, it's darkest at the center and gets lighter toward the edge, but it only seems to be affecting the sky and not the landscape underneath, photographed obviously simultaneously by the same lander uh, rover camera. And Holger, this is my first question. Have you ever encountered anything in optics that is showing us what we're seeing in image number eight? And is Holger back with us? Uh, no, not yet. Sorry, I'm, oh, there you I are. will be back in 10 minutes, okay? Yeah. Okay. You'll be back in 10 uh, minutes. Richard, I've seen it. Okay, where? Uh, the original Viking lander photos. They have that same effect in the sky. Well, the, hang, on, hang on, hang on. There, there, there are two different effects. I should make very clear that when you take a film camera and you photograph the pattern on the right, it's a smooth, unbroken brightness grading down to lower light levels at the edge. The reason True. the reason it's stepped is because when you apply a digital camera, the camera has to make a decision between this light level and that light level in terms of the number of shades of gray in the image, digital imaging process. So you get this funny looking set of, of circles, but that's an artifact of the camera. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the light in the center versus dark in the center. I, I looked for all week after this image came out, I could not find any examples of where the lens in terms of a vignetting, a, a vignetting geometry gives you dark in the center and a light donut around the edges. That just cannot happen. There's no logical way, as you can imagine, how a lens which concentrates light could somehow have a void in the middle where there's no light at all. However, if you're photographing an actual glass structure composed of millions of separate components, both horizontally and vertically, there are ray trace geometries where the very glass structures you're photographing will concentrate the light in like the sides of a tunnel and give you a dark center, which is something that was totally unexpected. I hadn't really thought about it before, but when I looked into the physics and the ray tracing ideas afterwards, 
it's a stunning confirmation, <clears throat> probably more apparent in these images than any we've seen before because of the density, the surviving density of the glass in the shelves over the moon extending tens of miles high. And you're looking horizontally. And so you're getting this bizarre optical effect, which cannot be reproduced with anything but a model of looking through miles and miles of geometric glass. <clears throat> he said grumbling. Yeah, no, it's more than just a grumble. Uh, so you're saying that the bright spot should be in the middle, shouldn't be a dark spot. No, exactly. It's opposite, totally, totally opposite. And any simple idea of how lenses work shows you that you can't get a dark spot in the middle of a lens. You can't. This is not... Yeah, I know what you're referring to, because sometimes if you look at a cheap lens, especially, you can see, you know, layering in there, and that has, that sometimes translates to the image. What I'm talking about is uh, the, the initial image being scanned, in the case of the Viking, by whatever resolution. No, 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 that was, that was, to that, that was, all right, remember, it was not, it was not a framing camera. The Viking camera was no. literally were vertically mounted, they had little mirrors, and they scanned vertically, line by line by line, as the turret rotated horizontally to give you a pan, to give you width, to give you, you know, up and, and sideways. They were, not right. like, they, they were not like the Indian cameras or any cameras used by any space agency now at all. And it the, wouldn't matter. And the, and the digital artifacting you're talking about, which occurred particularly around mm -hmm. sunset, is because of the digital stepping between the shades of gray that the camera was limited to recording. It couldn't go in between like half a step. It had to step a whole number, and that's what you see. But again, you never mm -hmm. had a dark area in the middle of any of the Viking frames. It always was bright, and when it was photographing the sky after sunset, it was isocontours a brightness shading to dark at the edges, not dark in the center and lighter at the edges. I have looked and looked and looked. I've had a whole week. I can't find any other example of this stunning phenomenon except the idea that we're looking through miles of glass that are acting in a very bizarre and extraordinary fashion on the moon, above the moon, around the moon, and the Indians are the first to take the pictures. Can I, can I move on to number nine? Because number nine is really important. Yeah, okay. I wasn't, I, I wasn't making an issue about it, light or dark. I was just clarifying in my own mind which you were referring to. The stepping thing is right. Anybody with a cheap monitor that's been trying to watch a 4K movie notices that exactly. the black part all swims around. That's an artifact of the technology having nothing to do with the way light and lenses really behave. Exactly. All right, so number nine. This is the creme de la creme de la creme. Click on it, it gets bigger. It covers the entire frame. You have to scan. This is the same cameras photographing the same landscape before they went and got the geometry to get the, the lander in the frame. And they took two pictures, which again, Thomas Apre, I think that's how you pronounce his name in French, he put them together as a panorama. You notice there was a little overlap. And then he posted them on his website. And I simply went to his website 
copied the image, brought it into my imaging programs, turned up the saturation, meaning the color, and lo and behold, two images made into a pan by a third party turned out to be full, glorious, real color of the moon. And Apray did not put artificial color. For one thing, he, he never said he did, and he's an honest guy. Number two, the, the cameras, the images he worked from, are supposed to be taken by only black and white cameras. So how do I know that the color we're seeing in number nine is real? Because it's an extension geometrically from, 30 the, seconds. from the far left of the pan to the far right of the pan, thank you, Keith, of exactly the same color phenomenon we saw right beside the lander, uh, right after landing from the lander camera. And what makes this so unbelievable is you should not be able to get consistent real color on the moon from the little rover because the Indians have claimed again and again and again, those cameras are only black and white. You're on the other side of midnight. When we return, we're going to supply an answer to this other level Sherlock Holmesian mystery and explore the implications of what we're seeing. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night edition, September 2nd, Labor Day weekend of The Other Side of Midnight. We're exploring tonight 
the resounding and layered and increasingly mysterious mysteries, is that doubly redundant, of the Indian unmanned mission to the moon, Chandrian 3. Because we've been told over and over again in all their manuals and PR out things and everything from the 2019 aborted uh, Chandrayaan-2 mission, which, as you know, crashed on the moon just before landing. So Chandrayaan-3 is an effort to duplicate the profile and to successfully land, which they did 10 days ago, 10 days ago tonight. And yet, everything you read, if you Google, the cameras on Prajin are are black and white. They're black and white. They're black and white. There's no color. They're black and white, black and white. And yet, when Thomas Apre posted his beautifully done panorama, stitching the first two rover images together of the lunar horizon, lo and behold, they're in color. And they shouldn't be. There's no way you can get color, and I know Ron's going to argue with me, out of black and white images. Because there is a there is one little tricky thing you can do, but you need some kind of filtering. You can't use a monochrome camera to get color. So, how come we have color from the moon from the little rover? How come it's not officially released, but comes out through a back door, through an apparent leak from a source that Apre apparently has in the Indian Space Agency, who slipped him real color images. Now, how do I know they're real color? Okay, this is where things get a little technical, so pay very close attention. Because if you go and look at his colorized uh, image, which is item number seven or six, um, it doesn't look at all like not only the first color image that the Indians released, but you can tell that it's so uniform, particularly when you brighten it up. That's not the way the real lunar landscape looks. How do we know? By means of the Chandrayaan 3 lander camera itself, which is color, was focused on the area of the lunar surface where the rover would descend the ramp. It's a fixed view. They can't move. the. In fact, here's what really blew my mind. It turns out that there are no movable color cameras on the Vikram lander at all. All they have is the what they call the lander cameras for hazard avoidance and all that. They've got, I think, a total of three color cameras on the lander. They're all fixed in position. They have fixed fields of view. And sitting on the surface, they're all looking down at the lunar landscape. None of them. I, I'm not, if I'm wrong, please correct me. But from everything I've been able to research, they're all looking down. And the one that we got the first picture from, and we've only seen the same frame over and over again, is because it can't be moved. There's no mirrors. There's no rotating. There's no cameras on two sides of the lander looking opposite directions. There's no wide angle versus very narrow. It's all right in front of us. And the Vikram lander, in, in terms of giving us a sense of place, a sense of the moon with the lander on the moon, can only be seen from the rover. And the rover, back in 2019, was equipped only with black and white cameras. Now, here's where some background is important. Between the Curiosity rover mission 
uh, back in the early 2000s. And the um, uh, Perseverance mission a couple years ago, same spacecraft, same body, same camera, same everything. NASA in the interim decided to upgrade the nav navigation cameras and the so-called HAZCAMs, the hazard cameras. There were something like 17 cameras on Curiosity and 23 on Perseverance. They replaced all the black and white cameras with gorgeous color views, color cameras, state-of-the-art developed in the intervening years between Curiosity and Perseverance. So it's, it's easy to assume that there were some in ISRO that said, hey, we got four more years, let's swap out those stupid black and white cameras because they were limited in technology then, and a la Moore's Law, developing color cameras that have the same weight, the same size, better capability would seem possible in four years in digital imaging. Holger will correct me if I'm wrong. So my assumption, my honest assumption, is that, well, in the interim, they decided to replace the black and white cameras on uh, the rover with two little color cameras, which would make sense because the only way you would ever, given the design of the uh, Chandrayaan-3 mission, you would get a full color view of the entire landscape, the whole horizon, would be if there were color cameras on the little rover and it turned around in a circle and went click, 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 until you had a full 360-degree panorama, and then you did it several times over the 14 days as the sun moved, the shadows moved, the detail changed, the lighting changed, and you would have a complete picture like we had with Surveyor 1 back in 1966 of the entire lunar landscape in the course of one 14-hour, 14-day uh, lunar day. Anyway, that's the honest explanation that I can think of. And then I say to myself, but why, if that's true, are the Indians only giving us black and white versions of an actual color frame? And not doing it once or twice, but they've done it four times now. So it can't be an accident. The only answer that I can think of is the first color image from the lander has so freaked them out that they dare not show color of what the landscape looks like. And so they've been palming off real color imagery as black and white from the rover. And what's my check on that? How did Thomas Aprayer get two color frames from the rover cameras, put them together as a panorama and get what you see in item number nine. Now, obviously, what I've done is I've enhanced the color. I brought it up. Ruggiero said rather uh, um, interestingly, you've oversaturated. Well, yeah, of course I did, because I'm trying to point out for people who are not used to subtlety in today's world that we're looking at something that's impossible. And just with the color view from the lander, the green part is extended out to the horizon on the left, there's red stuff in between, and then there's blue and pinkish stuff on the right, which I believe is color projected on the lunar surface from prismatic rainbow refraction in the glass of the dome surviving overhead. And then you'll say, well, what dome? Well, look above the damn horizon and you'll see it. 
in all its geometric splendor with these weird tunneling effects because wherever you point the camera in the center of the field of view, it's dark, which again, I believe cannot be a camera artifact, but is in fact a, a combination of the camera looking at special geometric glass and the glass tunneling a darker area in the center of an otherwise lighted symmetrical tunnel effect because it's incredibly glittering, geometrically complex glass in tiers and structures and vertical supports. And it's a cornucopia of data about the real moon that for whatever reason, the, Chi the Chinese, the Indians are not even breathing about, let alone admitting that they're taking such astonishing imagery. So, Holger, have you ever seen, uh, go to my item number uh, seven or eight, uh, seven first maybe, and then eight. Have you ever seen an imaging artifact that mimics what we're seeing in this uh, second, I'm sorry, fourth Indian supposedly black and white image? Oh, sorry. First, uh, my fault. My fault. <laughs> I didn't turn the pot up. Sorry. Go ahead. Start again, please. Uh, I'm here now. Uh, sorry for the short break. Uh, no before. problem. I'm, I'm actually now uh, in the desert north of the pyramid in Egypt this week on an expedition trip here west of the old city of Cairo in, in a location which looks like planet Mars a bit, <laughs> at least uh, 10 years ago. It, uh, it's a completely new city built here in the desert, north of the pyramid, where the hotel is located. It's, uh, it's an interesting environment. Are here. you staying at the Mena House? Uh, no, no. That is more in the old city locations. And this is, uh, the city is about one third of the old Cairo city size. Right. Completely in the sand desert west of the old city now. If you look on Google Earth there, you see uh, construction ongoing and today it's much, uh, it's a developed city now here. Like in, uh, like on another planet. It's really interesting. Did you hear my question? Cool. Uh, yeah, it was a question about uh, one image, but actually I cannot access the website from here, interestingly. Oh. I can access all all kinds of other websites, news uh, magazines. Wait, wait, you mean the Egyptians are censoring like the other websites? The Israel website. Uh, no, I don't think it's censoring. <laughs> it's, of course, I can access all other sites here, but just this one, uh, not at this minute here. Data pipes but I've vary. Seen the image. I, I've seen the images uh, yesterday, uh, uh, the, the points there, and uh, you mean about the coloring? Well, both the color, not, not the artificial coloring, not what Aprea did with, with, you know, producing color out of black and white. I'm talking about the panorama number nine, which is two images that the um, Indians published first of the horizon from the rover supposedly black and white cameras, and in fact, the, the pictures are full color. Yeah, I also wondered at first about that, and I, I researched a bit about it and found out that uh, Thomas really, he colorized it. Uh, he colorized the black and white images, that it, at least that he explained. No, no wait, which image uh, are we talking about? Because he definitely colorized the land of view. From the lander view as yeah, the seen, lander view taken from the rover right. that was colorized. I'm, I, we know that. I'm not talking about that image. I'm talking about 
the two black and white images Isro released before, which when he put them together as his first panorama, they're full color. They're real color. He didn't touch the color. That's what was given to him by some source. And if you can't see the image, when you try to find the website, the other side of midnight.com, what comes up for you? It's uh, technically not connecting on the on the TCP level, on the network level. <laughs> That's weird. Ron, you had Over. something. You had something you wanted to say. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to simplify the uh, that uh, eloquent ten minute intro that you gave to him that Alder probably missed some of trying to get his dinner. Uh, breakfast. The, uh, breakfast. Is there any tra- is there any chance or any evidence that you've seen that there are any filters? available for those two cameras on the rover. That or is, I, they just, I looked into that detail. Yes, I looked I into that would. detail, but could not find any information about uh, the spectral sensitivities of the cameras on the rover and on the lander. There was some information which company produced them and uh, how large they are, how much radiation uh, protection capability they have, sure. like 50 megawatt uh, safety <laughs> range there. They can, That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, okay. That's a lot there, and maybe could be that they... But there's nothing that, that says how you can take... Only an, use panchromatic. There's nothing older mm-hmm. which says, because I've looked as, as you have, that says this is how we're turning black and white pictures into color. And it's real color. And the reason I know is because it's the same kind of landscape that I'm going to show you shortly in other missions, you know, from a variety of nations that have landed where they've taken ostensibly black and white and you brighten them up saturation-wise, and bingo, there's the color. Richard, yes? Richard, you, there is a way of taking colors from uh, black and white. You take a black and white picture and put a red filter over Yeah, you've got to have three. It's red, green, and blue. Green. Uh, you can do it afterwards. Yeah. So that's what Robert's trying to say. Yeah, yeah but, that, but they're, that's not what they're doing. That's not but what I don't think those you... colors are natural at all. No. The other thing about the, uh, about the layered uh, scene in the sky, it's clear that um, the French artist in the first photo where he brought up the sky, he inverted the photograph. He inverted, he inverted the... Uh, no, he didn't. No. No, look yes, at look that's at look, how, that's look, why the ground turned bright. Look at sky. number look at number five. That's the original Istro image. All I've done is whitened it up. All he did was take the same image and colorize it. He didn't change any signs, any negative, positive, whatever. He simply colorized the official Indian image, which gives us numbers number six and seven. And I brightened it up on seven so you can see the incredible geometry in the sky which is stepped because of the digital uh, stepping, you know, thing we talked about, the threshold brightness levels before. But there's real geometry there, and that's, of course, how you get the color on the surface. So let I'm me... I'm talking about the, the change between the first black and white, your number four. Yes. And the number five. Right. The number five has been equalized and inverted. No, it hasn't been inverted. That's, that's how you bring up No, that no, image. no, no. It has not been inverted. I did it myself. I know exactly what I did. I brightened it. I equalized it so that we could see the sky, which is much dimmer than the ground. You can see hints of it in four, but you can't see any detail. So to make... Well, if you invert this picture, you will get a bright 
a bright center in the sky. Yes, but that would be wrong because it's it's not real. It's not it's it's that would be wrong because it's not real. What you're seeing mm -hmm. in five and six and seven is real, simply augmented, enhanced, brightened. Mm -hmm. The sign yeah. it's not a negative. It's they're all positives. Yeah. All right. I'd like to ask Folger about the plasma data. This is very important because of strange lighting regimens that I've picked up and changes, very rapid changes in some of the information I've been studying. Holger, is there anything interesting in the plasma data that you, you said the raw plasma data came out? Did you see anything interesting or that caught your eye? The ISRO actually they, uh, released the raw data from their plasma measurement device on uh, the lander or I guess on the lander, not on the rover. The right. Rumba-LP uh, instrument, it's a, a probe which looks like an antenna with a sphere on top. It's a so-called Langmuir probe, mm -hmm. and that is measuring the electrostatic and plasma environment. And uh, surprisingly, they released uh, on their website in a graph the raw data uh, changing over time, how it develops uh, from the lunar uh, noon towards the evening. It changes there because uh, the solar wind uh, uh, pressures together the electrostatic fields there on the daylight surface of the moon to only maybe one to two meter. And then during the night, it expands up to 100 meter and more. That is a large change. And it could be that they uh, are trying to measure that uh, with the rover or the lander during the night even. Well, hang on, hang on. They, uh, they, they, for they, four days. they are claiming, I think there's a time lag between us and Holger, between here and, and Egypt. So I, I forgive me if I step on it sometimes. Uh, since they're only measuring the plasma during daytime, and the model that they're using is that the moon is an airless exposed body without layers of shattered geometric glass going miles in the sky around it. Their modeling will be totally dead wrong unless they account for what the interaction of the solar wind with the dome itself. Now, they are not obviously publicly admitting to this. So when you say they're, they're publishing raw data, without the right model, raw data is useless. It's pointless. You can never figure it out. So I don't really give them a lot of perks for publishing the data. Because without the right model, it, it's nonsense. It doesn't. It's like trying to understand Esperanto by by speaking Russian. So how do you get a model if you don't have data? You calculate it based on assumptions, which is what they've been doing since Apollo. We have a two-tiered. You know, we have a two-tiered, obviously global deep state space program. All one program. They're all singing from the same hymn book, and they're not telling us what's really there. They're telling us their version that they want us to buy of what's really there. So let us move on. We have a lot to go through, and we don't have a lot of time. Item number seven. Um, uh, Holger, you asked about why – not Holger, it was Bergero – who asked about why the early images from NASA were black and white and gray, and these uh, from the orbiter, at least from Chandrayaan-3, were colorful when you brought up yeah. the saturation. This is a first surface image – taken through three color filters, red, green, and blue, Robert, composited together from the camera on Surveyor, which showed the first color view of the surface of the moon from unmanned Surveyor, which landed in the pre-dawn hours of June 2nd, 1966. 
that surface in the published NASA data was gray. The only color were the little color chart sitting at the end of the Omni antenna boom. But when you bring up the saturation from the image in the archive, lo and behold, it is incredibly colorful. Just like the color from Chandrian 3, just like the color from the later Apollo Hasselblad film images, just like the colors that I've been showing everyone for years from every different landing, including the so-called secretive communist Chinese who are publishing real data under the People's Republican Army of the Chinese government website, which brings us to item number 11. This is an Apollo image. If you go to the uh, NASA archive at NASA headquarters, you can get this number. I actually meant to publish the number, and I didn't, so I'll, I'll go and replace it with the actual frame. Again, all I did was bring up the color. The color's already in the image. There's no balancing. There's no tinkering with shading. It's just a straight enhancement of the color saturation. And lo and behold, there's more reddish, bluish, greenish. And the dome over the Apollo 11 landing site, for some reason, is incredibly reddish tinged with a bluish hint in the upper left-hand corner. That is very interesting indeed, very. Then we move on to number 12. This is a view, I believe this is Gene Cernan from Apollo 17, photographed by the Maurer uh, camera in the window of the lunar module, looking at him uh, facing the TV camera on the surface, basically saluting in a very American way. And you know it's Cernan because of the red stripe on his helmet. That's how they differentiated between astronauts who were pilots and astronauts who were commanders during Apollo. They carried the same striping over into the ISIS missions from the uh, space station. If you look around him, again, all we've done is bring up the saturation, which is variegated color projected on the landscape in the model from the surviving glass over the Apollo 17 landing site. Same with number 13. This is, uh, I believe this is from Apollo 16, judging by the mountains in the background. And it's a exaggerated color saturation. You can see the flag is pretty what you'd expect, but look at the pink and blue and purple in the sky and the greenish reflected light from the lunar surface out of frame, which is mirrored in the um, reflected light off the one of the rover wheels in the bottom uh, right-hand corner. Then we come to a view from Apollo uh, 14 which is the famous uh, golf shot. This is an actual Hasselblad frame that was carefully examined a few months ago and the close-ups were published showing where the golf ball is in the frame. I took a chance and I said, I wonder what happens if I increase the color saturation? And there you see what you get. You get variegated color, which is not obviously on the published black and white gray images of the moon, even though they were taken with color film, but when you increase the saturation from the digital archive at NASA headquarters, bingo, what used to be viewed as a black and white gray surface turns out to be incredibly colorful, which of course brings us to item 15. This is a painting 
by the only human artist to stand on the surface of the moon and see what this looks like with his human eyeballs when he pushed the gold-plated visor up and looked at the moon through transparent, clear plastic of the helmet and looked at the real colors. And lo and behold, when you compare, again, a saturated increased version of a Apollo uh, 17 image uh, with his painting on the left, they're the same. The same with the item number 16, which is another view of uh, one of his astronaut compatriots he painted. I think this may be at the Apollo 17 landing site compared to the Artemis Orion color TV images made when they rounded the far side of the moon. That's the far side of the moon. And you can actually see the increased brightness and bluish cast at the bottom right-hand edge, which is where the lunar south pole is. And that's where the Indian mission has landed on the other side of this image. This is the far side, and they're just on the near side. But the cap is thicker over the poles of glass than it is elsewhere on the near side. And that's why they are seeing the colors that they're not admitting to. So I want to bring at this point our resident artist, one of them. We've got two. We're incredibly fortunate, Kinthea and Georgia. We'll go to Georgia first, and then we'll go to Kinthea. Georgia, what are your thoughts on the colors that we're seeing? Well, uh, quite a bit, actually. Um, do we have time before the break? Uh, we've got two minutes, so do a tease, and then we'll come back. <laughs> okay. Um, if we look at the structure of the human eye, we know that in the back of the eye there are rods and cones. Rods receive black and white or light and dark. Cones receive color. Now, just as a human being uh, has two sides to their body that aren't exactly the same, the eyes are not exactly the same. One eye will register a little bit brighter than the other or a, a different, slightly different color than the other. Um, it's so subtle that unless you know what to look for, you wouldn't know the difference. So if on a human being with the same two eyes in the same body are slightly different, how come all the cameras, whether they be American cameras from way back or the Indian cameras right now are coming up with the same colors as in the painting. Hmm. 30 seconds. That's my biggest question. Okay, we are at the, the um, where are we? Top of the hour. One hour to go. When we return, we will definitely be talking with Georgia about why are all these separate missions showing us the same impossible colors on the moon. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And after all 
other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode. Two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this now Saturday night, grading into Sunday morning. Here in the Land of Enchantment, we've passed the witching hour. It is after midnight. And we're playing, obviously, uh, one of my favorite albums, Big Floyd, The Dark Side of the Moon. It turns out the dark side of the moon is not just a metaphor for light followed by darkness, as uh, George Carlin used to say in that very funny bit. It also turns out that it's a political statement. Because it doesn't matter what side of the moon you're on, or even if the sun is shining bright in the sky down through an incredibly prismatic crystalline dome, what you present to the public seems to be the darker, in fact, the silent, in fact, the deep state, don't say anything about what's really there, side of the moon. Okay, so let us go back to Georgia, who was on the verge of saying something really interesting. Go for it. (laughs) Well, if you look at your number 15, where it has the Alan Bean painting uh, juxtaposed with the photograph, um, unless people have the experience of mixing colors, you have no idea how difficult it is to get those colors that exact. There's no way that that is an accident. Bean would have had to have seen those very colors and remembered them. Oh, I, 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 I think, frankly, it's even more interesting. Because I don't think any artists who have been through that experience, remember, they only spent two or three days. And uh, it wasn't days, it was hours outside walking around and then hours inside, you know, recuperating, eating, sleeping, all that. I think he had to have seen the right color versions of the pictures they took to be able to duplicate what you're seeing. Because when you turn up the saturation in one of the official pictures, bingo, it looks exactly like, look at that in number 15. 
That's what I, I know. Find. You, you'd have to you'd have to have the the color photograph chip right next yeah. to your yeah. mixing palette. Uh, I also have another question that is a little off subject, but maybe not. Why, if the whole reason for going there is to explore the environment, why don't they have infrared cameras? Why don't they have equipment that will pick up sound vibrations from the floor, the, the ground? Well, hang on, hang you on, know, hang on, hang on, hang on. The, 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 the Indians have deployed a seismometer from Chandrian 3, from the lander, Vikram lander, <clears throat> and they've actually posted a couple of traces from the seismometer jiggling from moonquakes. One graph showed the sounds transmitted to the seismometer from the little rover roving around. And the other, they posted and they said, this was an, a moonquake, a real authentic moonquake, source currently unknown. Because of course, you only got one seismometer and to do, to do you know, mapping, you gotta have more than one uh, or, or more than one over time to get triangulation. So they, we know they have a seismometer. Previous NASA missions did take seismometers. The ALSEP experiments packages deployed by the Apollo program all had seismometers, I believe. And we got tons of data until they kind of arbitrarily turned them off. And that's a whole other story. So they did include that, but they've never included infrared. They've never included, except for a telescope, they did have an ultraviolet camera sensor in the telescope on Apollo 16, but they never looked at the moon with it. They looked at the Earth, <laughs> you know, homesick. Well, the, the reason that I, I thought of the sound thing is, do you remember when there was a crash on the moon and it rang like a bell for a Apollo while? 12, they smashed the upper stage of the Saturn V rocket into the moon. So it could be picked up by the seismometer in from Apollo 11 and Apollo 12 because it was done uh, after they after the astronauts left the moon. And yeah, it rang like a bell for over an hour on the Apollo uh, 12 mission. That was has never really been adequately explained. And my explanation is very simple. If we're looking at the geometry of a multi-tiered glass structure extending miles over most of the moon, except a lot of it's now shattered. If you make it vibrate like an old railroad trestle or a roller coaster trestle, even after the impulse has gone, the vibrations, the echoes, the resonances, the the echoing back and forth in the in the framework will go on and on and on depending upon the lossless vibration of the mechanics of the structure you're dealing with. So I've always interpreted those incredibly anomalous seismic readings as a literal seismic validation of the lunar dome model, given that all that structure, if you hit it like a bell, it's going to ring at all kinds of different overlapping and ultimately totally confusing frequencies. Well, it seems to me that if they're holding back or outright lying about the visual aspect, that they would be doing the same with the auditory aspect. Except um, they didn't know enough in the beginning because they didn't know what they were getting into. And NASA published data freely, and then the, the curtain descended. And in the later missions, and then, of course, in the interim, you know, 50 years since, they haven't told us anything that's real up there. Anything. 
there and uh, there's one more reason that um, I I thought of the sound issue, and that is looking at that anomalous stuff that's in the sky that shows up in in your uh, examples. Um, in metaphysical tradition, there are people that can see sound, and in a lot of metaphysical traditional classic volumes, there are paintings of people who look at cathedrals from far away and can see the sound displayed in the air of the music from the cathedral oh showing within the atmosphere. That sky stuff in your photographs looks exactly like some of those metaphysical paintings. And I wonder if it's not just the glass doing weird stuff, but if there's sound involved. Oh, what an interesting idea. Well, the seismometers picked up sound. I mean, vibration immaterial is sound. Um, it may not lie in the human you know, frequency range, but it's still sound. So, again, given that vibration affects things that are less massive than things that are more massive, they'll move easier, quicker. The dome compared to the mass of the moon is nothing in terms of percentage. It's point oh 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 whatever. So it will vibrate easier than the moon itself. And I really feel that a lot of what the mainstream guys going all the way back to Gary Latham, who was the principal investigator on the um, seismic uh, experiments uh, during Apollo, and I got a chance to sit down with him and have a detailed conversation for CBS News. Um, I believe that what they interpreted as moonquakes in the moon itself are actually between the moon and what's above it, and it's amplified and all distorted and changed by the vibrations in the dome. But with modern computers and AI, the magic phrase these days, they should be, or maybe we can, separate out the signals and do a pattern match to see if, in fact, this interesting idea is correct. Well, again, it seems to me that if they're going to explore a brand new surface of another world, they would have more than just a camera. They would have sound stuff. They would have infrared. They would have uh, electromagnetic field detection. I mean, if there's other stuff up there, wouldn't we want to detect it if it's moving around? Well, there's two. There's a, basically two parts to that. One is the detection, and the other is what do you publish? What do you admit publicly you've detected? I think they could be doing all of that, Georgia, and they've just never told us. I mean, in very limited ways, they've kind of hinted this and there. And, and Holger was talking about this plasma experiment on the, on the Chandrayaan-3 mission. Will they, are they really showing us data that they don't understand themselves? Or are they showing us a version of the data safe in the assumption that no one is going to figure out that it's actually taken from the interaction of the solar wind with this incredible glass dome surrounding the entire moon in incredible state of disrepair all over the front, the Earth side. One, one final little metaphysical weirdness uh, drop in the bucket here. Um, the, the landing was on August the 23rd, 
which that was the day that Mercury goes retrograde. Oh. And Mercury has to do with communications. Right. And when it's retrograde, all communications stop or go inward. The other thing is that um, back in the 30s and 40s, there were esoteric books written about the esoteric mantras of certain nations. The one for India is, I hide the light. Oh, my God. You're kidding. Nope. Ah! Well, that tells us something. Uh, Richard? Yeah. Yeah, we're all over the map here, but uh, I've got That's a fine. thought that can tie Georgia and uh, uh, Holger's remarks together because uh, recent studies have verified that sound can actually travel through a vacuum. What? Of course, I know there are well, people well, out there that have been – their hair has been standing up. Well, 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 going, how? How does it travel through a vacuum? Well, I was about to tell you. I wasn't going to string it out. Uh, the, uh, no, they've detected if, if the sound – Participants, if the if the oscillating thing and the uh, reacting thing are very close together, electrostatic fields can carry the resonance and cause you know the expected reaction. Oh yeah, but that but that's not vacuum. sound. That is that is the transduction, meaning the translation from one medium to another of the impulse of the of the waves from you know vibration of material into vibration of electrical fields. And yeah, that's the transduction of the equivalent of sound, but it's not sound. Well, according to the, according to the lab reports, they, they said it was the, it's the same thing. I no, mean, it's, it's not, not sound. It's not. No, it's not sound. Hold it. It's not, it's not simply because you're talking about things happening in a vacuum. Now, in the case of the what you're pitching for the moon, there would be an enormously powerful electrostatic field involved, and perhaps that's the medium that's allowing some of this stuff to happen. Be more specific. What do you mean, stuff? Define well, the stuff. lander does it. Okay, the lander does indeed have a uh, something to measure electrostatic forces. I Holger. Yeah, said that, that. that 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 experiment that Holger was was talking about. Yes. Right. Why would they be checking that if there wasn't some reason to? Because uh, for it, because for decades, the solar wind interaction with the moon has been attributed to certain chemistry on the surface that produces things like water uh, out of hydroxyls, supplying another oxygen to HO, so you get H, or I'm sorry, another hydrogen to oxygen to get H2O. And there are other chemistries that could be affected by the, the, the solar wind interacting with the surface. There also was a model for a while that the solar wind impacting on the vacuum surface, the dust, would cause levitation, electrostatic levitation of the dust mm -hmm. miles above the moon, which is what the Apollo astronauts, some of them saw in lunar orbit as they came around from the night to the day side, they saw geometric rays, like 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 sun rays that you see after sunset or before sunrise in certain cloud mm -hmm. situations, but on an airless surface. And now, of course, given these images from Chandrian, that that tubular tunnel effect 
is in the glass. It's in the dome that the astronauts had no idea they were they could see conceivably ever be looking at because no one told them. And it doesn't look even up close like a glass shell. It's much more fragmented and ethereal. That's why it's yeah. weather on. That's why it's weather on the moon. It's electrostatic. It's a different kind of weather than our. Well, you're you're yeah. totally breaking up. I can't hear you, Robert. It's weird. You're the only you one. Still electrostatic, so I agree with him. Try again, yeah, Robert. Yeah, and I discussed electrostatic weather, moon, particles. Yeah, but that's not what's affecting the photographs. And I want to stay with the photographs because all this other stuff is interpretive. It's well, not... well, go ahead. You said color. You're right. You're worried about the color of the photographs. I mean, the uh, colors I projected going... on the surface. Yeah, I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to mention this because it's not specific to the moon. But in the case of uh, photos from JPL that one looks at, I have run across several. And no, I didn't stack them up in a file, but I know I remember what a couple of them were. Where you, I took the image as posted, which was supposed to be black and white, by JPL. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a, a Shelby unnamed uh, moon or two a little further away from us than that one. And uh, when I simply converted them to RGB in the imaging program, you know, it doesn't do anything. It just says, okay, we'll pretend you're, you're three different channels. Boom. Sometimes you hit an image where it pops into full color. I've had this happen several because times. Because they've been lying about what it's supposed to be in the file. It's totally because of what yeah. I'm saying. You know, yeah, well, you didn't. Uh, what I'm saying is that no processing, no touching, or anything was recorded. All I had to do was convert it from a from a uh, supposed grayscale, but it wasn't really. It was just black and white, uh, to a color image, and boom, all the color came back. So yes, they've been lying to us about that. Yeah, so there's okay. a lot of other things that have been dismissed that I wonder if we're being too easy on them. They've yeah. been fiddling with that stuff for years. Of course. By the way, when Ruggiero asked the first question in email a few days ago about why the Apollo stuff was gray and the current stuff is colorful, remember that, Ruggiero? Uh, yes, I do, yeah. And, and, and Ron's answer to you was, well, it's easier to retouch black and white images in color. And that is true. But if the, if, the, if the secret that you're desperately trying to hide over a generation or more, two generations, is all about the color, because without the prism glass, you don't get the color, hiding the color is your first primary you know, consideration, your priority, because the color should never be there. And if it is there, the whole game collapses. Mm -hmm. I got um, a little question I was writing down for myself. Okay. So, right. So on on Earth, I think you've kind of touched on it already, but I'll, I'll just say as a, a lay person, on Earth we get the Northern Lights effect at um, you know the, the, the hemispheres. Um, why is this not a electrical type effect, and you, or why is this not a, a thing of physics and can only be the glass? Because. The mm. the auroras you see, aurora borealis, aurora mm. australis, are created by impact of intense charged particles on the Earth's upper atmosphere, exciting, yeah, exciting, like like a neon sign, exciting the mm -hmm. different elements, oxygen, nitrogen, to to radiate primary colors that are part of their 
energy shifts in the molecules or atoms. So it's mm-hmm. so it's radiated color from stimulated atomic radiation caused by particle impact with the solar wind, ducted, yeah. controlled by the Earth's magnetic field, which is why it's concentrated where the field is strongest around the north and south magnetic pole of the Earth. There is no global magnetic field around the moon. We know that because yes. of umpteen measurements. There is no atmosphere that's dense enough you know, to produce an optical mm-hmm. uh, 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 you know, illumination that would give you mm-hmm. a visible aurora. You know, the, mm-hmm. the comparison between the density of the trace molecules or atoms around the moon to the Earth is like trillions to one. So the only thing that can be doing what we're seeing on the ground as projected colored light on a movie screen is by having a prismatic effect like through the, you know, crystalline chandelier I have in my dining room where the sun hits it just right. You get a beautiful spray of colors on the wall. This is not esoteric. This is very straightforward. The problem is it's being produced by a technology so far beyond anyone's comprehension that they simply say, oh, it can't be because I don't know how to create it. Well, we're not the smartest guys in the universe. Somebody was a lot smarter, and they did this, and we're simply denying repeated, incredibly multidisciplinary evidence that it's real, and it's there, and the Indians have joined the cover-up crowd, and they're keeping it secret, too. Can I just give one one Yeah, of course, of course. I want to go back to the Alan Bean photographs. Okay. Um, your, your, your 15, 15, and, 15 and 16, yep. Now, I had a look at uh, Mr. Bean's website, and I know that the way he was doing his art effect um, was he did like a scratching effect across. And it was the way well, those are the geometric and the acrylics where he would raise geometry. That's separate mm. from the color. Yeah, but with what he did there, um, it looks like you're you're like looking at something through through water or even a glassy effect. It's it's very yeah. Artist, and Andrew and I there's no reason for it to and be And Andrew and I exactly. Andrew and I have discussed this. So Andrew, this is your cue to start there and then move through the other things you've been saying you want to talk about. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Richard, the colors that you're bringing out match up. Look. Let me give you a real-world example, I mean, meaning down here on this planet. I, just real quick, and it's something I was blurting in the chat box, just patiently waiting. I, I went to a, a – we, we have a fair in the city where I, I bought this Tibetan singing bowl, which, by the way, I have sitting beside me. And, Richard, before you could get into the part in this um, – th- th- there's a reason for this. When I got into this building where all these um, vendors are selling their wares – there was a little – well, it was, it was a huge atrium. We all walked into this giant space, and everybody was sitting on the floor. And I went, what's going on? And on the walls were projected beautiful, digital, colorful images of Monet paintings on all four walls. Oh and everybody my. was sitting – Yeah, and they were sitting in awe at this. Remember, and they were, they were, Bean actually painted a moon from space, and he called it the Monet moon. Yeah, and people were sitting there. There were like like dozens of people just sitting there. We I walked through it because each image were on all four walls and they were just gently blending into the next painting of his. And then I went into the into the, the you main. Mean, you mean know, they they were doing cross fades or they were one yeah. image that would fade into the next into the next? Yeah. Okay. 
And then everybody came into the building and then looked at all these different vendors who were selling knives and all the artwork and all this. And one of the gals that I, I spoke about her, her name was Eve. And she said to me, why are there so many people coming in? I said, that's because they're sitting in a giant atrium, like the size of a giant high school gymnasium <laughs> on the floor looking at Monet paintings. What I'm trying to say is that what we're discussing here is what humanity needs. And they need wonder. And we're waiting for it. We'll sit in awe and then we will do something about it. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to jump out of it for but, a second. No, just... no, no. It's, it's incredibly on point because, Andrew, I watched NASA. I've been part of NASA. I was a little teeny part, actually, of the Apollo program. Remember the Lunar Press book and the moon section. I have watched NASA consistently from the beginning make something wondrous and magical and uplifting and unifying for humanity. Yes. Deadly boring as dust, deliberately over and over and over, killing the spirit, killing the wonder, killing the potential by deliberate design. And the Indians unfortunately are doing the same damn thing yes yes and that's what upsets me is that we're in this gray haze i'm more than upset a, i'm angry yeah <laughs> i'm really and, angry and it's, and it's it's over it's time everybody's ready everybody's ready and i whatever stage you are in your life each uh, i don't i don't want to get on a pedestal <laughs> yes yeah, do so that's what the show is about various pedestals <laughs> Richard, everybody listening to this show is a wondrous person because everybody's created an oh man, a wondrous image of of beauty. And if we could ever just connect with that, and just and if if these darn powers that be would just stop being so afraid and let us, uh, there's there's so much beauty and it's waiting for us. Because it begins within ourselves, and I know Georgia would jump on this in a second, but it, it's we're ready to embrace something so big and to reconnect with something so unbelievably massive. And I believe, as I've had my conversations with Ron especially, that we're ready to bridge forth into something that's going to blossom into something extraordinary beyond anything that even any of us could ever imagine. And, and I, I don't know what it's going to take to break this bubble. It reminds me of that uh, that um, to have another silly reference, but um, Dr. Seuss. The, it was that. Oh, what is it? It's um, it's about that elephant that hears a little who on a, on in, in a oh, little water drop. Oh, something hears a who. Horton, yeah. Horton hears a who. Yes, and it's, it's that that it's an analogy for where do we find that little girl that's in the closet playing with her toy that's just going to say the one the same word that we're all saying to break the bubble and bust this through. I don't know. I you know, I, I know I see things. Well, I think we're purpose. very, 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 yeah. very close. We need just a little more push. Push. Yeah. And I yeah. that's what the yeah. show's supposed to be. I mean yeah. I know why do you go ahead. Oh. I say why do you think in Neolithic times, in the supposed Stone Age, uh that a sizable amount of the population were taken care of by everybody else because they had to spend their time doing that uh, by artists. There's, there are differences in perceptions that apparently predate anything we can blame as culture. Uh, do you remember what Ellie said in Contact when she saw the uh, uh, Star Nursery? They should have sent a poet. <laughs> exactly. Thank okay, you. That's, that's, that's why Musk Beautifully is sending done. artists. That's why Musk is sending artists. You've seen that movie. Yes, of course. Yeah. Hey, guys, we're at the bottom of the hour. Everyone hold it there. We're talking about the Indians going to the moon, a culture incredibly rich 
in mythology and pageantry and wonder and sci-fi history that is unbelievable unless you look at it really, really closely. And out of this incredibly important, artistic, and deeply rich, ancient, ancient culture, we get black and white. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, the dark side of the moon. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcasters provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the last half hour of this Saturday night, Sunday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight, where we're talking about a poverty. Uh, You know, I can list a whole ream of technological wonders that will transform this planet from the increasing cesspool it's become because of our own excesses and short-sightedness and short political time frames and paying people off and the buck is everything or the rupee or the ruble or whatever. But the thing that I can't understand is, and I think I want Georgia to come back on this one, picking up on what Andrew just said, India is supposed to be the most spiritual culture and nation on earth. And they're acting worse than the Chinese commies. What the heck is going on? Georgia, can you help? (laughs) Well, um, think of it kind of like an inversion ratio. However high the mountain is, that's how deep the valley is. In a culture that believes that the soul reincarnates in both genders, they're still killing their girl babies. In a culture that believes that the soul has experience in all walks of life, they had a very rigid caste system until pretty recently. So 
um, you know, they've had a longer time to unfold their history. They've got an unbroken line back to some really ancient stuff. And um, they've got the inversion ratio to match it. And it makes no sense, but that's how things seem to work. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it is. But, you know, that's part of the... Well, all right. Um, uh, Andrew asked a really, really critical question. And I want everyone to take a whack at it, all our panelists tonight. What will it take to change this, given what we can see is waiting for all humanity, which will kick us light years ahead and upstairs if we're allowed to know it exists and embrace it? Can I jump in yeah, first? Yeah, here? by all means. I think that humanity is like this baby chick in a shell, and we're just now starting to peck our way out. And as we do, we are going to find life and wonder everywhere, out in space with the bigger family, but also here with the consciousness in plants, the consciousness of the animal kingdom that we're just beginning to discover. Uh, we're going to find things everywhere, not just in one direction, and we're right on the verge of doing that, which is why the resistance to doing that is so entrenched right now. See, this is one of the reasons, and I want everybody else to respond on this, but to what Georgia just said. I think our, our, our real hope, and I used to be more, uh, I used to be more emphatic about this than I am now, rests with Elon Musk, and that's a terrible thing to say given what he's been doing lately. By sending nine civilian artists, Andrew hit it right on the head, artists to the moon, to this stunning, glorious, colorful wonders that are really there, particularly if we can succeed as we're working behind the scenes to let them know what to expect, when to anticipate, what technology to take with them so they can see it easily, like polarizing filters. That could be the breakthrough, and that could happen as soon as a year and a half from tonight. Maybe that close in time, that could be the breakthrough. So everybody else have at it. Who wants to go next? About, about the light, because Georgia mentioned the infrared light before the break. I'd like to follow up shortly about that one. Okay. And uh, because about about the infrared, there is there are hints that the cameras are infrared sensitive on the rover or on the lander, because there are still discussion ongoing what are the real light conditions on the moon, especially if you see uh, there was never a, a visual light a telescope on the moon. There was only this ultraviolet telescope on the moon. And then the craters from from the orbit sometimes look like, or the surface looks like they, it is translucent, illuminated from from below, like a self-illuminating uh, object. Uh, and that is some hint that those cameras which have taken those images are infrared sensitive, because then you see uh, also the heat infrared in in the visual light transformed. It gives some strange uh, effects then on the images. Mm. Okay. So that, that could explain some some observations there. You see. Kenti, you've been very, 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 very quiet. 
Well, it's a pretty amazing show, and I, <laughs> I, I'm. Well, just, you're a pretty I'm, amazing person. You were on the ground floor of all this craziness. Come on, here, here. You're an here. artist. I yeah. know. I know. <laughs> oh, but I mean, I love, I love hearing all of you speak, and especially I've been enjoying the artistic contributions of Andrew and Georgia. I mean, the insights are like I'm just going, yes, yes, yes. I mean, I'm very much a, a a more intuitive, subjective kind of person. So I, I you know, I'm not going to speak on the science of it. I'm really not. But I can tell you that the colors move me. And I think what Andrew was, and both Georgia, what what all of you are saying, I think it's important to tap into the heart energy. That's what motivates people. I don't think that just science will do it. it, it I think if we want to really engage the public, then then the whole thing has to be attached to a bigger story, which, of course, always comes down to relationship, whether it's relationship um, within our own species or relationship with, with whatever's out there. And that also includes, like Georgia said, the, the, the forms of life, on this planet that maybe we haven't been relating to. So when I look at these images, I'm moved, I'm moved by the possibility of what, what it can mean. And, um, yeah, what it means in terms of relationships, that's what motivates me to take action in life. So, the extension of our family out into the stars is very exciting. The idea of a dome being out there, that there has been life, that there is life, and I'm convinced that there is everywhere life. I think that that is, uh, that's what moves me. That's what interests me. That's what gets me to uh, take action. And you'll notice that the mainstream hmm, humans, they respond to stories. If you just give us just facts, it doesn't really like do anything. I mean, it sort of just spins around. But if you attach a story to it, that's why all these great truths have been passed on through legends, passed down through through that medium of story, which again comes back to relationships. And I think that you can see that relationship in Alan Bean's paintings. There is, there is a lot of heart energy in his art. And uh, so I think that, I think I'm complete here. <laughs> Thank you. Richard, this is the woman that, this is the woman that, 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 studied the face on Mars from every angle, every light source. Oh, and almost bent her back out of shape forever. Yes, doing it. Yeah, and, and had her kids wondering what the heck she's doing and why they're ignoring, you know, oh, I shouldn't say that. It's going to happen. That's and what happened. Back, yeah, and it has it in the backyard. It's weathering away, which is exactly like the last, whatever, number 40, 50 years of this nonsense. It's like, because I'm not I'm coming after you, but I say pretend <laughs> no, I know. still have it. No, 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 but that's what NASA's doing. That's what India is now doing. That's what we keep seeing is this 
this just like, well, let's just haze it over and get everybody just falling asleep and, oh, well, just get on to the next nonsense. See, this is why I'm really pinning my hopes, and you know I'm a left-brain scientist kind of guy. But I really think that that Musk genius, and he is obviously a genius at several different levels, and somebody please mute because we're hearing lots of scrabbling somewhere, is in picking nine artists under his their Japanese benefactor to go and orbit the moon for several days and simply look at it. And if we give them the right tools and we give them the right heads up and we're well on our way to doing that through back channels, how could you suppress nine artists with their souls and their following and their ex, you know, hordes of, of, of fans and all that from being there at the edge of history and not reporting what they're seeing and then speculating wildly? What the hell does it mean? Why haven't we known this for the last 50 years? And we've already seen an example of this, Richard, when Walt Disney did that film where the astronauts were – remember, it was a pretend film – going around the moon. They shoot off flares. This is what? Back in the – 1954, I think. Can you explain I believe it they replaced it with the uh, Michael Jackson ride, so it was there for a long time. No, it was a film. No, no, th this was an actual. No, I know film. the film was part of it was part of a ride at the fair at Disneyland, the original Disneyland. No, it was a moon rocket. They had built a TWA multi-story moon rocket with tail fins and landing legs, looking a lot like some of Musk's stuff. And you'd go inside, oh, cool. and you had a, an immersion experience of flying to the moon in a spaceship in a rocket. At Tomorrowland, you mean? Yeah, that was, uh, was called Tomorrowland. Yes, yes. Thank you. And interestingly, the show, uh, the, the show Andrew pointed to with some flares uh, thrown to the lunar surface to reveal on the far uh, side the, the dark. It was, it was dark. And, 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 and uh, that very episode is, is a three-part TV series from yeah, the 1950s. Yeah. And that mm -hmm. second episode, this is seen. It's not on Disney Plus on the internet. You can watch the, the first and the third episode on Disney Plus uh, on the internet today, but not the second episode. Interestingly, oh, my goodness. And that's the one that's got the flare-lit city on the background. Yeah, and I, of yes. course, saved yeah, all the stills, and I have posted them. The moon. I, I, Holger, I have posted those images again and again and again on the other side of midnight. I've actually got a, a set I'll do in the future where I compare them to the Orion spacecraft images and you actually can see in the Disney fantasy the damn dome. But Richard Holger's pointing out that Disney Plus has eliminated this. Walt Disney is turning in his grave and wherever else he is at that kind yes. of silliness because that man Well, it, but, but Andrew, let, let, let's back up. If in fact it is it is a canonical truth from the in crowd, the deep state, whoever runs the planet, this is things humans will never ever get to know. Remember when John Alexander was giving a briefing at the Pentagon and he started laying out some things about UFOs, and one of the undersecretaries of defense jumped up and and shouted in anger, "That's not you're not supposed to know that till you die." This is all connected to what is this life here in three dimensions really all about? Would we be satisfied with the crumbs we're all getting 
if we understood the spectra and the scope and the expanse of reality all around us that a tiny handful of tin-plated delusions of godhood, to quote Kirk in uh, one of the Star Trek episodes, have been keeping from the human race forever. That's right. What, what I mentioned... Global tomorrow, but has to come down. It's the political economic system that has installed the mind control apparatus in the global mockingbird media. And its purpose is suppression of human consciousness. So the, so the real question is how, Robert, do we break out of prison? What's I our breakthrough? I think individual has to do it independently. Uh, you know, well, elections, I don't know if that's ever going to work again. But the whole system of mind control by modern media has to be dismantled. And the people are doing it. People are walking away from this media. You know, I, I canceled cable television seven months ago, and I've never been more prolific. And uh, like I like to say, instead of watching news, let's make news. Okay, Laura, 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 Laura. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Laura is very, very quiet. So obviously she's been thinking of some really good things to say in the last half hour. Go for it. Have I? Yes. Well, I mean, I just can't. I I feel like a broken record because I, I still have the same question. I mean, why should people care about the moon, about this moon landing, about what's going on there. We've been so kind of force-fed this image of a silver moon and all the the childish myths about what the moon is instead of the real moon. And once again, I'm going to bring up this photographer, Ramia Moon, and uh, – I don't know if that's how his last name is pronounced, but I just retweeted him earlier this morning. He just took a photo of the moon with his five-inch refractor telescope, and it shows lots of color, the orange soil, light and dark. It's not just this silver image. I mean, I even follow NASA on Instagram, and their images of the moon are just this flat shades of gray, but not many image of the moon so obviously there's more to it we're not being told i don't understand why and i just well look just at look like, at my item number 17 yeah the picture on the left is not from nasa not from russia not from india not from any government yeah it's a talented amateur astronomer who took a 14 inch telescope which is pretty big by you know amateur standards and digital yeah. imaging and took a picture of the moon with Mars occulting, meaning moving behind it and then coming out the other side about an hour later. And that's real color from the shots that's on the on the web, on his, his website, and that's not a moon that you've ever seen. The moon that you think you've seen is in the picture number 18 below. That's the moon right. everybody thinks about. That's fake. The real moon is the upper left-hand panel in number 17, in which you, by the way, can also see the glass dome all along the limb of the moon. And I've done close-ups and enlargements, and there's mm-hmm. geometric structure at the edge because this is the boundary between the near side where the glass is almost gone through erosion and the far side 
where it's much, much thicker and more intact. And that boundary is literally at the lunar curved horizon with Mars rising behind it. And you look at that, and if you know it's real, in order to have dreams, they have to be grounded in a reality that we all agree on. And one thing we're finding now is that, as Robert said so brilliantly the other night in an email, we seem to be co-mingling different realities, different time streams, different parallel existences in this one, and fewer and fewer people are agreeing about common, ordinary things that we used to all have a common language to share. Again, people are so focused on the landing and not on what's there. And isn't again, that, I isn't have... it absolutely ass backward? Yeah. Isn't that dumb, stupid, and inane, and and ridiculous, and obscene? Not to want to know. But why is it typical? Politics. Because we tend to just look at the surface of things and not the deeper meaning. But why should people? I mean. I think people say, well, how does this affect me? What's on the moon? How does it affect me? It doesn't, so they go on with their day. So I'm asking you, how does this affect me? Well, it's not going to affect you tomorrow. But in mm -hmm. 10 years, if, if the Musk mission with the artists reveal what's really there, there will be a gold rush like you could not imagine to get to the physics and technologies and machines that are waiting for us that will transform the planet Earth we all live on into a place, instead of dying in front of our eyes, it will go on in a way, in a lifestyle to which we all would like to become accustomed, that our great-grandmothers lived in and grandfathers and has been slipping further and further away in front of greed, in front of oil and coal and atmospheric pollution and the warming, which is real, and the dead end, which is ultimately the planet is going to reject us and return to what it used to be. And a whole different species will arrive in a few million years to start it all over again if they don't have the truth sitting in our skies a quarter million miles away every single night maybe that's why it was put there it was put there why do you think we get eclipses why do you oh, think, i know it was why do you think the cia called their first secret photographs of the moon project corona hiding it under the idea of looking down at missile bases in the soviet union when the leaked imagery i got was thousands of pictures on one reel of film only of the moon and I put them on the website, and I put them on the show, and I've done comparisons. And it's like sometimes I feel like we're trying to bail out the Atlantic Ocean with a teacup. Okay. Well, what's the answer? I think uh, the answer the is to democratize access to the moon. And the one okay. guy on the planet, whatever his weird politics and whatever his ego and whatever his obsessions – He's the one who's created the technology that will make it possible for individuals or small groups to send CubeSats to the lunar orbit and bring home or send home or put on Twitter what's really there. And the flagship of that new attitude and politic is the nine artists 
that are going to fly to the moon in about a year and a half, God willing, and the creek don't rise. Right. I have to say, I have never met a genius, even looking in the mirror, that wasn't weird. (laughs) I think that's the statement of the night. Yeah. Well, actually, I think the little exchange where I ask Andrew a simple question and he jumps out like we've been rehearsing it all night. He had no idea I was going to say that. Uh, I, I, if I was going to do a promo for something, I would use that. People would say, oh, I want to listen to that. You know, there's been a lot of good conversation tonight, I think. Okay, we've got seven minutes. Who is something interesting to say that we haven't heard? I do. I be Andrew. Okay. Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick. This is um, from a listener, Jennifer. She's wonderful. She uh, just uh, noted to me that there is a new video game that came out today. It's from, it's called Starfield. Oh Uh, yes. I've heard about that. Right. Let me read to you what she wrote. She had to write this real quick. She really wanted to call in. And if I mumble it, I'm sorry. If new Atlantis was the shiny pearl, then Cydonia on Mars would be a rusty bolt. This gritty and grungy city of the soul system is one of the major cities that you will be visiting frequently during your time in Starfield. With a heavy focus on mining and production, Cydonia expanded downward as opposed to outwards. Oh, there's Georgia speaking. Creating a city divided across various floors. (laughs) You will naturally be sent to Cydonia very early on in the main constellation story, as you will. And Sarah will make a pit stop here to check some info out at the Broken Spear Bar quest that will bring you to Mars and Clued. Um, yeah. And, and, and anyway, so that she just gave me a little tidbit. And the point is, is that so these are vignette scenarios in this new interactive video yeah. game called Starfield. Yeah, and, and they and they're and they're going to Mars to Sidonia. Yeah, yeah. This is what, what are they using as their a... model? <laughs> well. <laughs> Yeah, well, I haven't dug that deep, but she, she didn't let me know that part. But the point is, she wanted. She said Richard must hear, must know this, and this is it. It's it's inspiration. It's it's um, you know, it it comes as Ron said with our artists first. It's the game creators. They're mm-hmm. artists. He's and sending, sending nine artists deliberately. Yeah. Come on, I think Musk is playing a very interesting 4D chess game, and I thought that for a very long time, and everything else he's doing is designed to kind of keep anybody from really poking around in in the starship going to the moon mission because he's trying to get around the filters that will do everything and anything to keep us in prison. You, you know, do a show on why they're keeping us in prison. Oh, sorry, Laura. Musk is a sign of uh, democratizing, exploring the moon because Musk is actually an oligarch. And he's funding uh, under this sense uh, of But I have no doubt. Elon Musk is an American outcome. Wait a minute. I'm losing every third word. It's terrible. Yes, Ooh, everyone is echoing. It sounds like it's in a hallway. Not just me. But I said that Elon Musk is not democratizing the moon. He's paying for it as an oligarch. Well, maybe his intention is totally wrong, but if he really takes nine unfettered artists' souls with creativity and vast followings and audience, which they are, how is he going to keep them from telling everybody what they've seen as they're seeing it? You know, it's 100% because 
he's one of the counters to this suppression of consciousness. He's trying to expand consciousness in a lot of ways. And also he's warning us about AI, and I think everybody's getting a little too cozy with AI. We're going – well, when I say uh, – Amen. I don't, mean, I don't mean the same thing as everybody else means, so – I'm go, I'm working on a show on AI, you know, in the background things are moving quietly, slowly. But when we do the AI show, we're going to go dissect it up sideways, backwards and forwards because what we have now that's claimed to be AI, it's not. Yeah, it's artificial, it's not intelligent. It's simply super super efficient at teraflops per second. So it's brute force pattern recognition it's not intrinsically creative and innovative from a spirit or a soul or an identity. And that's the only thing that's going to save us to keep it as a tool as opposed to a competitor. I agree with that. Good. You do. Because you're, gonna, you're both going to be part of that show. What I'm going to make is that there's a, a global deep state that has been suppressing 90 seconds. And yep. I think it's going to take a single man, Uh-oh. not, not yep. a, a, a movie. I hear the Grim Reaper. A single person yep. with a greater understanding. Yeah, we are, we are literally, guys, I, I want to thank everybody. We are out of time. So we're all going to do this again, depending upon if there are any surprises coming from the Indians, or even if they're not, because the world desperately needs surprise. We have become like the guy sitting, staring at his navel and talking to the phantoms in the room. The human race, unless it expands outward, as Joseph Farrell and I have discussed many times, unless it acknowledges that we're in an open system as opposed to a closed system, ultimately the projection on the current course is that the human race, at whatever time you choose, is inevitably going to die. The answer to that is to open the system. But in fact, we don't have to do anything because the system has always been open. We need simply to be aware of it. And if we're aware of it, then in fact, we will transition to a stunning new truth. So until next week, remember tomorrow, we're going to do the um, uh, repeat of tonight's show. So if you got anybody in your audience that hasn't heard the show, let them know. So until then, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. Yeah.